Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name is Kason. On this podcast, we discuss uh, effective storytelling techniques across our favorite media, games, movies, literature, and music. Mm. And we have a good show lined up for you guys today. Uh, let's get some house cleaning stuff out of the way. Because <sighs> this is going to go up a bunch of different places, right? So Yeah. If you are an audio-only listener to this podcast, okay, um, if you were on Google Play or if you were on iTunes, you don't have to follow anything new. This will update and you'll be G to G. You can just continue. It is, it'll be sent straight to you. Nothing changes. Um, I don't know how it's going to work on other podcast apps. And that's because uh, I don't know how we got on all of these other podcast apps, I think what happens is that they sort of scrape RSS feeds from sources like iTunes and Google Play, and they sort of just like create them themselves. But, but we didn't make accounts on Podbean and these other places and like submit to them, right? Um, po- on Pocket Casts, I went to submit the new RSS feed and uh, it said essentially it's already on here. And I was like, oh. Okay, so some of that's done automatically. I have no idea if you will be able to just continue on the same feed you had been following before on places like Podbean, Pocket Casts, and others. Mm-hmm. All I know is, is that if you're an iTunes or Google Play person, you don't have to do anything. It's totally updated on its own. Um, so for the rest of you, you may have to search State of the Arc podcast and follow anything, and I apologize for that. I tried really hard to make that. Not an issue, but nothing I can do about it. That's number one. Number two, we are live streaming now on Twitch, not on YouTube. And the time has changed, obviously, to Sunday afternoon. So we're doing it on Sunday afternoons live. We will upload the podcast to YouTube on Wednesday mornings. It'll also go live audio only on Wednesday mornings. (sighs) I think that's it in terms of, like, new stuff. Yeah. Um, Let's jump into it. Our first segment of the day is Stories of the Week. We have a whole bunch of stories that you guys shared with us, news stories from a bunch of different places. Um, By the way, join our Discord server. Link will be in the description on YouTube. Um, If you join the Discord server, we have a category for our podcast, State of the Arc Podcast, and you can share news stories with us if there's anything you want to get our reactions on or anything you want to make us aware of for the podcast. Um, There's another section under there called Community Stories. We'll get to that segment at the end. This is where we share cool stuff that you guys are making. So if if you're working on... Uh, if you're an artist or if you're working on a game or if you, uh, you know, are a musician or something like that, you want to share some of your work with us, you have a, a chance to get featured. We'll get to that a little bit later. But here are the stories I want to talk about that I thought were cool from this week. Mm. Uh, well, it's going to be from this week. This is a little bit more than this week because we were supposed to podcast on Tuesday and didn't end up doing kind it. kind of messed up a little, but... It's okay. So there's a little bit more than normal because we're covering a little bit further back. But first of all, the Super Smash Brothers uh, Nintendo Direct, the uh, ultimate Nintendo Direct. Yeah. Um, They announced a couple new characters. Ken, which is an Echo Fighter for Ryu. Uh, Incineroar, which is a Pokemon. Um, I I guess pretty cool. Uh, 
Sure. Nothing, nothing in particular that I was like super stoked for. I know, Kason, you're you're a Geno advocate. You want Geno yeah. in the game, right? Yeah, it appears as though we're not going to get Geno, which is very disappointing. Unless he's a DLC, but I don't, I don't yeah. see him being a DLC. I see DLC being used for other stuff, not Geno. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because they they one of the things they announced is a season pass, of course, but um, that they're going to have five extra. Um, so they've announced all the characters that will come at launch yeah. at this point. So Ken and Incineroar are the two that are like, okay, the, these are like this, what is it, 75 characters or whatever that are locked for the game for launch. But then they're going to add an additional five with DLC. So people are, you know, talking about Gino and a bunch of other characters they hope to see, but I don't know. Good. You're saying Gino might be a spirit. So Gino would is in the game as like a trophy that can kind of help you do stuff, but yeah. that's not what I want. That doesn't, that doesn't cut it for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I found that, I thought that was interesting too, right? They, they announced spirits were sort of replacing trophies yeah. from the previous Smash Brothers games. And, and what I, what I thought was really weird about this was that they, I don't remember if it was text they put on the screen, or if they said it, mm-hmm. but they were like, um, it takes so much work to do the trophies, so we decided to do spirits. More or less, I'm, I'm summarizing or paraphrasing what they said. Mm-hmm. But it's like, the spirits are way more work, I would think, because you have to actually, like, balance them and give them abilities and, like, integrate right. them into, like, the actual play of the game versus, like, creating a 3D model and, like, writing a paragraph of, like, explanation of what this thing comes from? Like, what? I, did, I didn't understand that. I don't know. The excuses that game developers use for why they do and don't do certain things are often difficult to understand for me. Yeah, it, it was very, very strange. Um, but, I mean, it's cool. I, I think the adventure mode that they teased... Yeah, what do you think about um, that? I mean, you know, I'm excited about it. What do you think uh, about the way they, they introduced it, though? Because Sakurai said... um, we don't care about story, basically. Oh, yeah. Right. But, and then there's this big but, right? Like the adventure mode in Smash Brothers is just about fun, not about story. So don't get your hopes up that there's going to be story here. It, I feel like he did it on purpose. Like, because people, secretly, people do want a story, but it would just take so much to cram all these characters in one universe. They, they don't even want to touch that, right? And yeah. so they built this really cool cutscene, but it's like, oh, this looks too much like a story. We got to tell people there's no story. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for for Smash Brothers, I mean, that's kind of how it's always been, right? They never had like a legit story in a Smash really. Brothers adventure mode. Yeah. So like they were toys that were being played with by hands, right? And then they became but, real life and fought against the hand and became real. But they have this whole thing with like all the characters getting like wiped out by that energy or whatever and yeah. you know that kind of <laughs> <Right. whole thing. laughs> anyway so like the idea of like fighters in this world versus spirits so yeah. it kind of opens up to where they can put any character in the universe of this particular story they're telling right mm-hmm. uh from basically anything but only the fighters are the ones that make the roster and they then they can put nods to all these different characters by using spirits who can like assist you in battle. So it's an interesting concept. We'll see. We'll see how it works. Um, anyways, yeah, they're going to be releasing five extra fighters via DLC. Um, I think that's cool. Oh, Piranha Plant. That was actually the other character. Yeah, that'll answer. be a free DLC, I believe. Yeah. Um, oh. Interesting. Uh, I, I like it. Uh, it's real different from 
you know, kind of like the usual fighter that they have. Um, the, the roster is just ridiculous at this point. I mean, freaking huge. it's hard to ask for more. Um, yeah. It would be cool to get, you know, certain like uh, niche characters like Gino. I know that they've shown Isaac from Golden Sun as a spirit, I think, in the game or okay. um, as an assist character or whatever it is. Um, there are certain characters that would be like, oh, that'd be awesome to have that character. But I mean, it's really hard to ask for more when you have a roster of 75 characters in a freaking fighting game. That's going to go up to 80 or something. Like, It's almost like there's a point where the one day included a certain amount of characters, all of a sudden people started wanting like everything, right? If you're going to include, gosh, like the Metroid, that dragon pterodactyl thing, I can't remember what they called it. Oh, from Metroid, right? Uh, Ridley? Or if you're going to include like seven Fire Emblem characters in your game, it's like... Y- people are going to want expect that for every game every right? series yeah yeah but i think they in some ways shot themselves in the foot but in other ways it's like nah it's they really did give a, a ton of stuff so ridley yeah. that's what i'm talking about you're gonna yeah, about ridley in the game but not gino like come on and then people can say stuff like that nah. um okay so that was smash brothers looks awesome still as stoked for it as i've ever been the only thing i didn't like was the voice acting i thought like especially on Marth, it was really lame. Didn't like it at all. Yeah, but, uh, Japanese. So when has um when has a fighting game ever included good voice acting? I'd like someone to tell me if they've ever seen that before. I don't think it has ever happened. Um. Okay. Let me uh move over to my display here. Show you guys what we're looking at. So another story here. Uh, Ubisoft believes that the next gen is going to be the last for consoles as Microsoft looks beyond platforms. So essentially, like, the next-gen consoles will come out, but then, like, the following, after that, there will no longer be dedicated gaming consoles, according to them. I, I believe that. Yeah, we talked about this on our last podcast, I think. Mm-hmm. We talked about what we thought the future of gaming was and uh, talked a lot about how getting to away from dedicated devices and onto, like, I can be on anyone's cell phone or i can be on anyone's smart tv or whatever and and like streaming services when internet connections get a little bit faster and people can you know stream a game fast enough (laughs) i mean we're we're a couple decades away from that i think but but um we were talking about this how uh it's it seems like limiting yourself to well, just as a consumer too, right? Like if I have a device in my hand that has the capability, has the power to be able to play any of these high-level games on it, like why would I want to go out and buy Nintendo's dedicated console and then go out and buy Microsoft's dedicated console so I can have Halo and I can have Mario and then I want God of War so I got to buy a PlayStation. That's just crazy. And these consoles are expensive. Yeah. And if you and, think about it, like a subscription service, like what you'd mentioned, which is likely what's what's going to happen, if you pay $10 a month for something like that, over the course of a typical console's lifetime, six years, actually ends up being like $700-something. It's so much <laughs> money, dude. More lucrative for them in the end, but it feels cheaper because you're only given 10 bucks a month, and you can yeah. cancel whenever you want, but you're never going to do it. Yeah. So anyways, um, I thought it was an interesting article. I'll try to share as many of these in the description when it goes up on YouTube as possible if you guys want to read into this. But I don't know. I just thought it was interesting because 
we had just been talking about this, how we thought the future of gaming was going to be developers are going to want to be able to de- to develop their game and put it into as many people's hands as possible, which is, for the most part, a mobile device. Everyone has a cell phone, right? The only difference so, is you, you need a physical controller. Until I die, I will <laughs> use my phone as my controller. I will need a physical, actual controller. Right. I wonder if... Um, it would be cheaper or something, but yeah. For like, let's let's just use Nintendo as an example, right? Nintendo is going to be making games that are going to go onto mobile devices, but they instead of selling a console, they could just sell a controller accessory, exactly, right? Yeah. That you could go buy, and and then you could plug that in or, or plug your phone into it somehow, and then have tactile input. Mm. So, anyways, thought it was interesting. Uh, Moving on to our next topic suggested by the audience. We also have um, Medieval. I don't I don't know if you've heard of Medieval, Kaysen. I have. Um, <laughs> PlayStation game. I played it with um, Chocolate Rob on our Patreon streams <clears throat> um, a while back. And it's like a real... I don't know how to describe it. It's It's like that era of games that fit like squarely into the PlayStation Nintendo 64 era. It's not like necessary a platformer. There's platforming elements, but it has like that cartoony feel of a Banjo-Kazooie. It has like all that kind of charm to it. And it's like a a, a knight who's like died. He's like a skeleton and he's like going on this adventure and like the music and the feel, the atmosphere reminded me a bit of like playing Banjo-Kazooie. Anyways, I'm going to share with you as well. The link to this, um, here, let me punch this in for you. Do, do, here you go. There. So now you have the link to the trailer to watch. Cool. Uh, let me switch to my display again. So we have this, uh, trailer for Medieval. And, and to me, like, this is how, this is how you do a remake of, a, of an old game. Mm. This is this is how it's done. <laughs> this looks really, really, really fun. And especially for anyone who played it back in the day, it's going to be like, oh, man, it's so faithful to what the original was. And I love how in the trailer they'll actually um, they'll actually like give you a like a back and forth kind of a comparison. They'll show you the gameplay of the PlayStation original and then they'll show you like that area now in the remake and it's like oh dude like amazing you know i want i don't know how many game developers (laughs) watch our podcast (laughs) but it's this is how you do a remake of an old game man this is how it's done yeah now in marketing the remake showing that it's like yes this is the same game this is the yes. same game. It just is updated, which is what everyone freaking wants. I know. Now, I, I say this because um, another thing that I thought was super cool. Let me pull this up as well. Hmm. Um, I I uh, this I think Heon sent this to me, but I had seen it a few months back. Uh, here, pull it up here. Here it is. So let me give you this link as well. So there was a guy who did a CG model for Barrett from Final Fantasy VII, but he he did it like very faithfully to the style of the original concept art. 
and it is wow. super cool, man. Like if you if you look at okay, I got it going on here. Oh yeah. So it's like it's like super 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 faithful to the original concept art for Barrett in Final Fantasy VII, yeah. and it just makes me think of like man, like if they had done the remake in this style, <laughs> and had recreated all the same maps and yeah. everything else, like the way that we just saw in that medieval trailer. Yeah. I wonder, I really wonder what the response would have been. I, I am curious because, you know, part of me goes like, oh yeah, be, this is the way to do it. Be faithful to the original thing. Yeah. But at the same time, I wonder if there was like an underlying expectation, especially due to the PS3 demo thing that they did a yeah, few years back. Shot them in the foot. Where it was like, no, you've got to like go for a very uh, high sense of realism yeah, and advent and, and all the stuff they made after it. Dirge mm-hmm. of Cerberus even it's like, and crisis core with the cutscenes. It's like yeah. they, they obviously were pushing towards a more realistic look and uh, I don't know. Yeah. I that wasn't the way to go. I don't know either. I don't know we'll what the, what the response would have been. It's, it's funny that people look at that and they go, yes, yes, this is what we wanted. Right, but it's be. I think that's in response. That's that. That's a a kickback to the negative reception of how Square has handled the remake so far. Exactly. More than it is, I think that being what everyone wanted to begin with. You're right. If they had actually come out with that from the beginning, people probably would not have been happy about that. Yeah, I really wonder. I really do wonder. I, my son's cartoony, anyways. But uh. yeah. Anyways, uh, thought that was interesting. Uh, everyone who played medieval back in the day, you, you got to take a look at this remake. It looks freaking fantastic. Um, I'm going to get it for sure. Um, I played about, I think halfway through it with, uh, with Rob on the Patreon streams <clears throat> and I, I freaking loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. So nice. Okay. Uh, let's move into the next one. This is the kind of the big one of all the news topics, the final fantasy 15 second anniversary program. Did you watch this Kason? <laughs> I watched part of it. I um, I didn't care about it until I started seeing all the all the reaction to they canceled, they canned everything, and Tabata quit. <laughs> I was like, I have to watch this. This is a freaking train wreck. What in the world? So I did watch some of it, but holy cow! I can't believe this happened. Um. Yeah. So I watched it live. <laughs> um yes i i'm gonna have to do a little bit of a rant warning here i'm probably gonna go off a bit um and i do this i do this because i do it out of love i don't do it i don't do it out of hate i really don't i don't want to hate man i have no desire to hate i I want to love good make it really hard games i want games to be better and i want them to be successful (laughs) yeah Okay, where do I start with this? So, <laughs> it it baffles me the complete level of incompetence from a structural and uh, management standpoint to announce an event and call that event second anniversary special program. Yep. Okay, follow me. This should not be hard. This should not be hard. But follow me with this. 
that sets a precedent and expectation for celebrating something, announcing something, giving something new. You then spend that event canceling promised DLC and announcing that the dude running the thing has quit the company. That's the kind of thing you send a press release out. You send a press release out. You say, hey, IGN, uh, maybe even do a video uh, interview or something. I'm going to sit down. Got some bad news. But here's the silver lining. You don't do this in a second anniversary special event. And like set it up and be like, hey, everyone, make sure you tune in for our anniversary event. It's going to be awesome. We're canceling all this crap. We're canceling 75% of the game we promised you. What are you doing? And the PC development's canceled. And the, the freaking director left the company. And just, what are you doing? What are you doing, dude? What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Who in their right mind lacks the common sense to know that that is a horrible idea? You know what should have happened? You know, every now and then when Japanese companies stand up and there's like the whole board of directors, there's like eight or nine people and they're all on a board and they stand and they just like bow for like 30 seconds and all the cameras are going and they're all just like, we're deeply sorry. That's what this whole president <laughs> It should have been an apology. It should not have been yeah. a special event, the, yeah. you know, an exciting thing that they're getting everyone pumped up for. They did announce yeah. a couple of things, but it was like by far, the negatives so outweighed the positives. It was freaking unbelievable. And what what is this bode for Final Fantasy 16? Because I think the idea is, oh, we'll just release a half-finished game and finish it later with DLC. They just killed that business model for themselves. The next game has to be, and this is unfortunate for them because the game industry is moving away from this model, right? But their next game has to be a complete game from the beginning, like straight up. Otherwise, I don't know how many people will buy it? Well, in relation to this, there was another report um, about Square Enix's losses uh, this year. Yeah, they lost uh, millions. They lost huge losses. And their push for a new business model, which is all about subscription-based stuff. Well, even in their AAA games. Subscribe to this crap. I, I Seriously, who? I don't know. I don't know who would do it, but I'm not doing that crap. Okay. Sucks and they cancel their stuff. Who's going to subscribe to them, to their promises of future stuff that never get fulfilled? Oh my gosh. It's, it's okay. Okay. There's so many things I got to get to here. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to rush through. We, we got to get to our main topics. I know. So, it's taking a long time. <laughs> okay. So here's, here's the other part, right? Like this goes back to what we've been saying for a long time. You, you can't, you just, this is just more proof. You can't announce something while it's in the conceptual stage. You just can't. You just can't, especially in game development because game development's freaking hard and there's a lot of things you got to work through and figure out. There's, it's very complicated, especially on this level, you know, the AAA level. Um, there, you're going to run into snags where it's like, I can't do the thing that I thought I was going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to change it. But if you've already announced it, then that's going to feel like you're taking something away. So imagine they had never announced all four of these DLC, right? It was the episode Arden, Aranea, um, Luna Freya, and Noctis. And, and the Noctis one was supposed to like even bring in an entirely new ending, basically. They canceled episode Noctis. Like, what the heck? He's 
He's the main character. <laughs> okay. The main character's DLC. So, right? Like, oh, if they had never announced that, they had never announced these DLC at all, right? What? Look what that does. Even having Tabata leave the company, even having internally the knowledge that, okay, we had to cancel these things, but we'll turn them into what they've announced are like little short form anime to sort of tell those stories, basically. Anime. Right. So that they're delivering something to try and fill in those blanks. So, but if they had never announced them as playable DLC and they came to this anniversary event and they said, look at all this new stuff we have for you, a new Arden DLC and all of these little short form anime to tell like extra parts of the story. And we're adding stuff to the comrades and we're doing this uh, crossover with Final Fantasy 14. Look at all this new stuff. And it feels like, oh, they're giving us all this new content. Isn't that amazing? Instead of it feeling like. Yeah, we, we're taking away 75% of the content we promised and we're giving you a little something, but we can't deliver. It's just the entire perception changes and they have, they have total control over how they are perceived and they continually ruin their own reputation by refusing to learn their lesson that you can't announce something in conceptual stage. You have to wait until it's basically finished basically. it's working it's in a beta format something you know who's really good at that um usually not always but uh bethesda they typically wait yes. a long time but when when a game is being released that's the first trailer you ever see of it is that year like mm-hmm. that's the way to do it anyways it's a freaking debacle and i just want to say this as my final punctuation um you know, uh, a lot of people, especially in sports, right, uh, people in sports who follow a team who had a dynasty at one time or like a glory days. You talk about maybe like um, the 49ers of the late 80s and early 90s. They've had some success since then, right? Super Bowls in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and, and you look at like or uh, the Dallas Cowboys. This is a great example. The oh, Dallas Cowboys of the early 90s and mid 90s Oh yeah, were really great. And the Dallas Cowboys since then have done nothing in 23 years they've won like two playoff games i think and they're just in shambles on the organizational level and people think of the dallas cowboys as a successful franchise that's run really well and and as a good football team yeah but the truth is is that the reason they perceive it that way is because of all the success they had two decades ago but that's not who the dallas cowboys are anymore they are the identity of the Dallas Cowboys is the dysfunction that Jerry Jones has created in the in the organization today. Yeah. That's who they are. That all this he, all of this dysfunction in the in the in in the organization is who they are now. They are not that team. They are now this team and they suck. Yeah. Right? Square Enix everyone thinks you hold on to that era of the mid to late 90s early 2000s. And you think that's who they are. It's that's the, that's, 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 they'll, they'll get back to that. They'll, they have some, some personnel there who were there during those days. They'll get back there, but that's not, that's not who they are anymore. The management is completely different. Like top management, executive positions, totally different people up there. Uh, The identity of the company 
is is one hundred percent different. Square Enix is not SquareSoft. They they are. This is who they are now. This event, second anniversary Final Fantasy fifteen event. This is who Square Enix is now. Yeah. And if you are holding out at all for Final Fantasy seven remake, that's not to say that they haven't made any good games since you know Kingdom Hearts one or whatever. Right. They've made good games. You can you can point to Near Automata. You can point to Bravely Default, not really made by them, but published by them. It's not that they haven't released any good games, but this company is not consistently putting out gold tier RPGs anymore like they were. And and they have a lot of dysfunction in this company, a lot. And it's a management issue. And yeah, it's management dictates what the creators do. They have lots of talent. They're not lacking talent. From artists, storytelling is a bit iffy, storytelling talent, but they have great artists and they have great developers in this company, a lot of talent. It's a management issue where the dysfunction is coming from. This is who they are now. Final Fantasy VII Remake is not going to be done in the spirit of the original game. It's not going to be a good game. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's not going to be good. It's going to be a, it's going to be probably going to be a bad game in the vein of all of this other stuff they're talking about subscription models uh a million dlc to try and like fix problems with the main development well we this are is who, this is where they are they've already said something in the past to the effect of possibly being an episodic game right mm-hmm. i will wait till the final episode comes out <laughs> because <laughs> yep. they may not you may never get the final episode even of the final fantasy 7 remake i i would say i wouldn't put it past square enix to actually cancel the remake if uh people hate on it too much yep anyways oh yeah my take on that final fantasy 15 has sold 8.1 million copies pretty good pretty good sales that's really good i don't know if they consider it good considering how much money they've burned on this but uh it is good well they should. And any other company in the world would say that that's wonderful. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, let's burn through these last three really quick. Okay, let's do it. Um, PlayStation Classic. It was announced. Uh, let me actually pull this article up. Um, they've basically announced that they are using a um, an open source emulator for the PlayStation Classic, uh, PCSX, which is... I mean, Friggin' bunch of people been using PCSX for a friggin' long time. Yep, <laughs> they're using an open source emulator, dude. Wow! In their in their in their product, they're selling for a hundred bucks. This thing was thrown together. Yeah, dude. So you're not for that hundred bucks. You're not paying for labor to produce like a, a really excellent, accurate PlayStation emulator. You're just getting PCSX. Wow. With inside of a nice little casing. With twenty, with a mediocre selection of twenty games, that's what you're paying hundred bucks for. I think that's BS. That's freaking ridiculous. Okay, moving on. Wow. Um, you know, again, I'll try to include these links in the description on uh, on YouTube if you guys want to look at some of these articles. Um, Castlevania is getting a third series on Netflix. I don't know if anyone has seen the Castlevania series on Netflix. Have you seen it, Casey? I have not actually. I've wanted to, but I haven't yet. It's pretty it's pretty good. It's not like my favorite thing ever. Um I definitely think there are some problems with it. Yeah. Um tone-wise, I think it can be confused a little bit. Um 
I think that it it goes for an adult sort of like R-rated kind of like thing mm. without like earning it sometimes. It just kind of does it just to be edgy, I feel. Huh. Um, however, there were some really effective moments at the end of the second season that legit like hit me in the feels. I was like, oh, wow. Castlevania just made me feel something. That's crazy. Mm. Um that that was really well done, and and especially toward like the second to last episode of this season, and it got me really excited. I think they've set up a lot of really interesting stories moving into season three. So, um, if you guys have not seen Castlevania on Netflix, I I do recommend it. I think it's a it's really really effective in in certain moments, and uh, they've done a good job of setting up some cool stuff coming up. Some good storytelling happening there is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, well, um, I. I... I mean, it's harder for me to watch stuff like that sometimes. Um, yeah, I can, I can, I can see why. <laughs> <laughs> Just so everyone else knows, I guess I, I, my wife is very sensitive to um, hardcore violence and stuff like that. So if I'm watching Castlevania, I'm watching it on my own. But like One Punch Man, I mean, I can do it sometimes. Okay. Um, all right, and then finally. Last one, I just wanted to point to this, uh, and this is because I'm going to be talking about the Coen brothers a little bit in our main topics today, but uh, they have a new uh, Netflix anthology um, Western film coming to Netflix called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And so I wanted to point this out for two reasons. One, uh, you know, covering storytelling like we do here on the channel, um, Hollywood films they don't take risks anymore. You never right. see them take risks at all. Yeah, it's very and the idea of an anthology film, I think is really, really cool. It's like a series of short stories, right? Like possibly not even all that related to each other. I don't know for sure. I haven't read the script or anything like that, but you cover like all these different stories. It's a, it's a film, but it's just a bunch of different collections of short stories. Reminds me a little bit of the, not the film version, but the, um, the the novel version of iRobot. Mm. Um, iRobot is it jumps around through time. It jumps around to different. People. Yeah, it's like a collection of yeah, yeah just and, stories. And so it's an anthology of yeah. different short stories that sort of like cover the same theme. Yeah, it like and, builds a, a world mm-hmm. that you can understand and, through different little vignettes. Yeah, and so um, the ballad of Buster Scruggs, let me show this, uh, I've got it here, is mm-hmm. going to be a Western anthology film coming to Netflix. I think it'll have a limited uh, theatrical release. I don't know where, but uh, in, in sometime in November. But this is coming to Netflix. And I really like the Coen brothers for a lot of reasons. I think they mm-hmm. are some of the few directors, two of the few directors, <laughs> they work on everything together. Yeah. Well, there, there are a couple of others. I mean, you can point to Christopher uh, Nolan, yeah. And um, uh, 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 why am I? Fr- oh, geez. Kill Bill director. What's his name? Uh, oh, Tarantino. Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. There are a few who have made a name for themselves as directors, and they're given some room to be a bit more experimental and try new things. And, mm. you know, they, they, they bring some fresh stuff to the table. And there are more than just those obviously, but uh, the Coen brothers are two that I like a lot who have had enough success to really like try new stuff in, mm-hmm. in the way that they make films. And so anyways, this is not something that's going to come 
as a wide release, but I am looking forward to it a lot. So uh, if that sounds cool to you, uh, look forward to The Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix. I will update you guys on my thoughts once I've seen it. All right. Okay. Now it's time to get away from that and move into our main event. We have... Okay, so what we're going to be doing on the podcast is essentially picking two topics. One for mm-hmm. Kason. Yeah. He's over there. One for me. And these are video ideas that we have that we want to develop into like a full video for the channel. So here on the podcast, we're going to be yeah. bouncing our ideas off of you, sharing some of our research and whatnot, and getting some of your ideas and refining our thoughts on these things. So these are not like final opinions or anything like that. This is just kind of where we're at in our thoughts, sort of trying to like put things together. So Kaysen's topic uh, for this week is going to be amnesia in East Asian media. Yep. And and mine is going to be uh, essentially what makes good dialogue, but I, I really want to examine uh, the differences between the dialogue that we see in popular anime and JRPGs versus uh, maybe like a more of a Western approach to dialogue um, and get some people's thoughts on that. Um, so you want to hit it, hit it off, Kason? Lead us off with this? Yeah, I'll do my best. So I did some research here, but it's not like I... Uh... It's not like I wrote an essay or anything. So I have a lot of thoughts. And just so that everybody in the chat knows, we are reading the chat. We are reading all of it. And I see some people um, talking, saying, oh, do do we take questions anymore? Um, like the Patreon submitted questions for this podcast uh, will kind of, they're just going to take a little bit of a different form. And mm. uh we mostly want you guys to participate in the discussion, especially for this uh, segment of our podcast. Yeah. And so right now I'm talking about amnesia and East Asia, East Asian media, specifically amnesia in video games, anime and Korean television shows. Um, because I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it's freaking insanely prominent. This stuff happens all the time uh, in, in this type of media and specifically I don't know. I was wondering exactly why. And so there's a, an anime called Amnesia. And unfortunately, as I'm really trying to do my research <laughs> in searching Japan Amnesia storytelling methods, um, I'm getting a lot of stuff just from that one anime, right? Um, but luckily, I actually have some... Uh, there's some stuff I was able to find, and I have some insights of my own that that... I kind of want to run past you guys a little bit and let me know what you think. Um, first off, and this is the simple, easy explanation. It's cheap. It's easy to um, get people to care about a character or if they have amnesia. So there's a few, there's a few things that amnesia solves when you're trying to write a complex character. One of them is um, it allows for uh, you to know exposition, specifically talking about um, the, as you know, trope right so you're in mass effect you're on this ship you're the commander of this ship you're walking around i know it's a western example but whatever no there's no amnesia here i'm just saying how it works in video games you're walking around and people are saying as you know this is the ship blah 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 and we're in this galaxy right now i typically don't like that i don't think anybody really does but having your character have amnesia now, all of a sudden, people can say, oh, you don't know that so-and-so is the president? 
oh, well, let me tell you about <laughs> this. And it's like, okay, now all of a sudden it kind of makes sense in the story because your character has amnesia. But that was cheap. That was lame. Like, why did you just have your character have amnesia? And now you can get away with all these super cheesy, lame expedition explanations, right? So that happens all the time. But you get a little bit deeper. It also allows um, for like the unknown to be introduced, right? But you get a little bit deeper into why amnesia exists more in like East Asian stuff than in the United States. And this is where I want to bring up the idea of cultural amnesia. And there's some, um, there's some, there's some stuff written on this that's online. That's really like, I don't know. It's really touchy. You don't want to, uh, tell another group of people that they have amnesia, but it is a really, um, it's really important to note that throughout the 1900s, East Asia got completely destroyed <laughs> throughout that whole uh, century by all sorts of things, by war, by colonialism, by um, communism, <laughs> There are all sorts of things that basically completely destroyed the cultures of each of these uh, countries. So Japan, you know, through um, trying to modernize with the Meiji Restoration and with kind of the the doing away with the samurai and with trying to modernize, there were a lot of people who felt that Japan had kind of forgotten their past. They'd forgotten where they came from. And they were so um, obsessed with industrializing and becoming like all the other nations that they were they were willing to do that. But after a few generations go by, you get what's called cultural amnesia. And that is the, the idea that older people can remember a time period that younger people have no clue about. Now, this happens in every culture, but specifically in East Asia, the way the how quickly those countries modernized is is just it's it's insane the country that the people who are younger are living in is so completely different from that that the older generation was living in that there there's like a sense of amnesia i guess i don't i really don't know another word to explain it but the loss of culture the loss of identity in a lot of ways um and I feel like it's 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 done more things in Asia than it has in the United States than it has in Europe in Europe people still look back to like the 1200s with medieval castles and stuff and mm. know that you know this is where they came from or the religions are still pretty well intact um the you know a lot of the old physical structures are still there whereas in japan they rebuild even the really old like um buddhist temples there's a couple of them that are still up but for the most part they actually tear them down and rebuild them every I don't know, every, every so many years. I can't remember exactly how long. It's like every decade or two. They completely tear it down and rebuild it just because it's just what they've been doing for a long time. They, they don't actually care too much that this building is really old. They, they're totally fine with destroying an old piece of art and, and rebuilding it completely from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And th- th- there, there's a sense of like loss when you're living in a, a country like that. And I've been to Japan. I've been to a lot of these temples. They're rebuilt with really, really precise architecture, and they're they're really well done, and it, they seem to preserve uh, the history very well. But at the same time, they're in the middle of this city with these huge, tall buildings next to them, and there's just this little park with this temple that used to be really important, but it's not really as important anymore. Um, so I think amnesia really um, 
it really hits the people of East Asia a lot harder because they're kind of living it in a way that it doesn't really do so for the United States or for Europe or for maybe other parts of the world. So there's my first theory, right? Mm. So okay. I'm gonna read some comments real quick. Yeah, go and for it. Because I, I wanted to touch on that. Um, let's hear it. You, you talked about um, using amnesia as a device yeah. to put the character in a place where they would not know the mysteries of the story or like, so, so when you're delivering exposition, you're delivering exposition to a character who doesn't know. It's like a, a form of avoiding, as you know, dialogue, right? If you have two people who have known each other for a long time, who have been together and the one person's telling you the explaining away, like what's happening to the other person, even though they were both there and they both saw it and they both know, yeah. it doesn't make sense. Cause it's, it's like, problem, why, should, yeah. why should you, I know that. Why would you tell me that? But using amnesia, and this is what they did in the beginning of Knights of the Old Republic. Knights of the Old well. Republic, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you're like on a ship, and and the captain comes in, is like talking to you, and is it's like, whoa, who, what? You don't know like what ship you're on? You don't know like who the captain is? Like what the freak? How do you not know this? But the purpose of it, and it's this is the the cheap way of doing it. The purpose of it is to put the character in the same place as the player or the audience, right? In that and they don't they don't know anything the same yeah. as we don't know anything. So they have to be exposited at <laughs> in the same way that we do. And it's yeah. a very cheap way, it's in my cheap. opinion. It's cheap of of trying to make a connection to a character who also isn't aware of what's yeah. going on. You know, Velhart made a really interesting comment. He says it's a, it's a, it's a, like a method to get to act two quicker. You don't want to mm-hmm. spend too much time on the exposition because that's boring. And especially when we talk about video games, you, you, you want to start killing things basically right away. <laughs> you don't want to sit there and learn about the Shire and how the hobbits farm all the time. You want to go straight to, uh, you know, Helm's Deep and start killing people. Well, let's just pretend that. You know, somebody had amnesia and, oh, now they're in the middle of this great battle. They don't know why they're there, but they have this skill set and these weapons. Okay, start killing people right away. You know, it's super cheap. And in some ways, I agree, Belhart. It's, it's, a, it's a cheap way to get to act two. But it's not mm. always just a cheap thing to yeah, do. Sure. It was kind of the point I was really trying to make because, yeah. like, it, it's, it's, che- it's seen as cheap. And it definitely is used that way all the time in video games, anime, and um, Asian television. But there is a real sense of, of um, like cultural amnesia amongst a lot of those places. I mean, I can, let me explain something real quick. This is freaking insane, right? Japan, World War II, firebomb. Tokyo was almost completely wiped out. Um, Osaka was almost completely destroyed. The United States freaking, you know, dropped nuclear bombs and all this stuff, right? The Philippines was occupied for decades by Japan, totally, you know, messed with their culture, influenced their money, um, and influence their um, their like language and stuff. Korea was occupied by Japan for a very long time, from 1910 to 1945. Japan forced Koreans to learn Japanese. They changed their way their uh, system works. They they kind of tried to clamp down on their religion a lot. China, freaking communism came into China, oh, and then North and South Korea. Obviously, that divide has just you know completely wrecked the cultural significance of certain like mountains or places that were in North Korea that South Korean people just can't go to anymore. So it's like, well, the old capital of Korea used to be more like Pyongyang, not Seoul. So it's like, they can't even go there anymore. So how were they supposed to pretend that they have this cultural, this shared culture with a place they can't go to China, 
freaking communism. Like China was already ravaged by colonialism in, in a lot of ways. But communism, and look up the, the um, cultural revolution. Research that for just a little bit. And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Basically, communism just destroyed the entire history of China. And it completely wiped out their past. And they have no semblance. I mean, they know. We know basically through archaeology and things. Thank heavens, by the way, that the terracotta army was discovered just after the Cultural Revolution. Otherwise, those things would have been smashed to bits. But all of the history of China was basically burned and destroyed so that communism could reinstate reinstitute like a new way of thinking that everybody could uh, identify with and it's it could be a cultural homogeneity kind of thing and then you go to vietnam and obviously in the 1960s completely destroyed you've got cambodia which had their own communist revolution you've got burma still having problems today and just the all of east asia you can go country by country and say holy cow every one of these countries was completely almost completely destroyed in some way by something. And they've had to rebuild from the ground up and their history is almost non-existent. And so when people from Europe or North America look at that, or even South America, all over the place can look back at their heritage in some way, right? But in East Asia, it's so recent that their, that their culture has basically been completely destroyed. And they literally, the culture can't remember, you know, things that, that have been destroyed and that don't exist from the past. There you go. That's my. There's um, an interesting comment it. here from Light Arc. He's saying, uh, I'm not sure how well cultural amnesia translates to individual amnesia. Do you have any thoughts in response to that? Okay. So, culture, specifically in East Asia, it, it's probably, it's, it is the most important like indicator of who you are. The, the customs, it's built into their language. I mean, everybody has a like cultural importance, right? But in the in the West, in Europe, in North America, um, the the idea of multiculturalism is really important, right? And so um, the idea that you're going to have one culture that everyone adheres to and that is just our thing and nobody else does it and it separates us and all this kind of stuff, it's not seen as important in the West as it is specifically in Japan, which Japan has like the longest um, line of an emperor, uh, royal line basically, going back from like 600 AD or something all the way till, till now of any place in the world, right? And the past is so incredibly important to them as a people because the East Asian people tend to be um, like more collective. They're, they're not as individualist the way people in the West are. People in the East are very collective. That's why a lot of those countries are communist countries. They, they tend to just kind of think that way, right? And so it's built into them, this cultural importance, this respect for elders, this, this uh, backwards looking kind of like, we, we want to preserve the past so much, but they can't. Like culturally, they want to do something that physically they aren't able to do anymore because it has almost been completely destroyed in one way or another, or it's been corrupted, or it's just not what it used to be, right? Now, every culture has this, and amnesia, you know, but but when I talk about the culture, when I talk about people in Japan, and constantly, you don't know who you are if you don't know who your parents are. Well, in the West, it's like, yeah, you're, you're your own person, though. But family and the ties of your past and ancestry and are so important in East Asia. It's part of why last names come first in East Asian languages, uh, whereas in, you know, most Western languages, the last name comes at the end of your name. Your first name is what's important because you're 
you know, I'm Kaysen. I'm, I'm a Sperry. Sure, I'm one of the Sperry people, but you don't know anything about me from knowing the Sperrys. You know that my name's Kaysen, and I am Kaysen. I am the only Kaysen, right? Whereas in Japan, you introduce your last name first. You say, oh, I'm this, I am of this family. And, oh, okay, second to that, here's my individual name. But first, here's my family name. And that, mm. just the way that their mm. language works and the politeness structure and everything, it is so geared towards respect for the past and respect for family and tradition in, in a way it just isn't here. And so when people, um, like, to, to, to lose your past, to forget your past, is one of the worst things that can happen to an Asian, which is so sad because it's happened to every Asian country that you can think of. But it is, it, it's such a big deal that um, the, the, you know, taking something like that and putting it into a show and having somebody lose a, a recollection of who they are and their past and their own name, it, it's more impactful in East Asian media than I think it is in, in um, Western media, where it's mostly just used as a cheap plot device. Interesting. Does that kind of... Yeah, I, I, find, I think that that's an interesting theory. Uh, a couple of questions yeah. here, a couple of comments here. Harry Dice Gaming says, maybe they use the amnesia because they're on a constant search for the truth. They can't find the answer. Or maybe the current state is so bad that they use amnesia to forget about the current state and look at it from an outside perspective. Well, actually, uh, that's interesting. That's something I hadn't thought of before. That's entirely, um, that's entirely possible. It's, it's that would be a form of escapism almost. Yeah. J.R. Shire says, with regards to, uh, is it Mao um, yeah. and the Cultural Revolution, we have to look at the ways in which the horrors and traumas of the 19th and 20th century affected China. And there yeah, was I did mention thought, that too. But yeah. There was a line of thought among a number of intellectuals in China, even before Mao, that the Chinese culture itself is what weakened China to allow it to be exploited by Europe and Japan. Um, sure, I mean, I'd have, to, I'd have to look into that. In fact, that's something I should probably put in my notes. Um, Western weakness academic because this is something I do want to talk about in a formal video at some point. Um, reason for so yeah, this is that's that's pretty good. Um, that's pretty good. I'll have to look into that and see if there's see if there's something there. I do know that when in the um in the first what do they call them the opium war the first opium war. China had a view of itself that was we're we're the um, you know we're the holy people I guess and the barbarians were the Europeans and in Europe it was vice versa it was those barbaric people in China and then we're the the great holy Europeans right um, and when England literally showed up at the harbor near Hong Kong with their massive warships ready to fight China had no idea uh, what was coming to them, I suppose. And in a lot of ways, they had this weird level of like respect and deference to, to foreigners that, well, it, it may have caused them problems in being mm -hmm. colonized. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anything else that you wanted to uh, go over that you want? Uh, well, there is. I want to talk about Final Fantasy IX for a bit. Okay. Because there's a line there that I remember, I remember like when I first played Final Fantasy IX, I was like, so Freya says about Sir Fratley that to be forgotten is worse than death. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that's a pretty Japanese thing to say, right? Yeah. Um, that, that sounds, in some ways it sounds right, but in other ways it's like, well, no. 
Like, no. I mean, to be forgotten isn't worse than death. Specifically, if the person who forgot you is, you know, if, if the person died. Anyways, I just had kind of funny thoughts about that quote just in general. The more I look at it now, you know, as you grow older, as you mature, as you have relationships and you, you know, get older, I guess. Um, I see that a little bit more to be being forgotten, being worse than death. Um, I know that my wife, uh, what's the Alzheimer's runs in her family. Uh, and, uh, so she, her grandparents had gone through this and it's, you know, it sucks. And I never known anyone with Alzheimer's before. And then, you know, my wife's talking about her grandparents and how her grandma really doesn't really remember her. And, and depending on how things go in the future, it's possible she could develop Alzheimer's. And that's like, mm-hmm. would, would you rather, yeah. you wouldn't want to say it, but would you rather somebody just not be around rather than be around and not know who you are? And, you know, it's something I never really had to even think about when I was a kid. And so, like, I do see that. And not to keep hammering on the whole cultural thing, <laughs> but in some ways, the reason that the Japanese fought so hard in World War II and, Anyways, a lot of it does come down to like dying is not the worst thing that can happen. And when you fight that hard for your culture, you know, even even the Americans and Europeans are very sympathetic with this idea just in general. Like the idea is because you're not going to be around for much longer, but the idea is you don't want what exists to be forgotten. You want to preserve what currently exists. Right. Otherwise, why would you die for it? And so the idea that there are things worth dying for that specifically just impact memory is, you know, it's a real thing. And I didn't think it was (laughs) until I got a little bit older. Got a couple of quotes from some of the people in the comments here from other games. So one from uh, Xenoblade 2 says, for us humans being forgotten is much worse than death. Yeah. And then another one from FF9 as well. Peace is but a shadow of death, desperate to forget its painful past. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, as you get older, like you're talking about, you start to come to terms with your mortality, I think. You you have to, right? Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, you just become delusional and desperate as the older you get and and you unravel. Yeah, just unravel. You become afraid of, yeah. Become crazy at at the fear of it. But for most people, I think, you, you come to terms with the idea of your mortality and at that point... The, the, uh, the only method we can even think of or conceive of to try and preserve ourselves any longer than our natural lives is through leaving a legacy, through leaving something to be remembered by. That when you're gone, you know, people will still remember who you are. And mm. if this is a stronger cultural um, desire uh, in Asia maybe than in other places of the world, I could see kind of your thesis being, um, you know, having some some real credence in that the idea of forgetting your, who you are, where you come from, has a little bit more of a cultural impact mm-hmm. in Asia than it does maybe in other places in the world. I think that that I think so. could, could be a big possibility. Why that, that particular, um, you know, uh, storytelling device seems to resonate and and kind of like has spread in uh, widely across their, their media. Yeah. Um, uh, Lego dog just put, I'm your living legacy from final fantasy seven crisis core. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's probably a lot there um, that you can, uh, 
Do you guys do you guys think I'm awesome. on with this, or did that sound like ramblings in terms of cultural amnesia? <laughs> <laughs> like I know I'm onto something, but does that really translate that well to storytelling? That's probably what I had the hardest time with when I was researching all of this. It's like yeah. I get it, I do get it, and I've <laughs> I've watched like ten Korean dramas in the past month or two, and every one of them <laughs> at some point has had amnesia, and I keep. For some reason, I keep getting surprised when it happens, but like, mm-hmm. it's just, it, it's, it's freaking ridiculous. It just happened to what I'm watching today. And I'm just like, again, again, why, why? Uh, Rob has another quote from Vagrant Story game that we just uh, finished doing a retrospective for. It'll be up tomorrow morning. Well, if you're listening to this mm-hmm. later, it'll have been out two days ago, probably. But um, what is memory? Men forget that which pains them, create new memories to please themselves, lie to themselves, believe their own lies. Um, amnesia was a big part of the plot of Xeno, uh, or not Xenogears, <laughs> well, Xenogears too, <laughs> but um, but uh, Vagrant Story as well. And it, it, it really is strange, like how common it is in yeah. in JRPGs in particular. But in in anime, in in Korean dramas, in just it's all over the place. It is. And that's one of the things I just just for me, just in general, to just make sure people are aware it is a cheap plot device, but it is not always only a cheap plot device. And especially when it comes to East Asian media. Yeah, because it probably has a little bit more cultural significance. Yeah. Okay, so I think you have some interesting Ideas with respects to amnesia with storytelling, especially should you bring discussions of trauma? I think that is where a lot of it starts. And I, I didn't shy away from that, J.R. Shire. You bring up some very good points that a lot of the issues of specifically Japan, well, not so much Japan, a little bit Japan, but Japan, not as much, but China, Vietnam, um, some parts of Korea, that is directly attributable to the Western influence over um, Eastern Asia that kind of forced them to forget. And I'm, there is some resentment there. It's part of why China doesn't like um, the, the West as much because the West caused them a lot of problems for about a hundred years. And so, um, yeah, I think there's something really big there, but, uh, but my point is it doesn't matter. And not that it doesn't matter, but I'm not focusing on what the pro- or what caused the amnesia but just the fact that every freaking country there has like amnesia like crazy. All their history books were burned, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a pretty interesting uh, topic. Um, for anyone yeah. who is either in the, the chat now, but especially anyone who listens to this afterwards or sees it on YouTube, feel free to leave thoughts. Uh, we want this to yeah. kind of spark discussions so that again, we can kind of refine our own thoughts on these things because we're, you know, we're trying to formulate ideas to turn these into videos and, you know, we've done some research, but I think it's going to be really nice to use the podcast as a way to sort of like bounce ideas off of the audience and off of each other so that we can sort of like yeah. see things from other perspectives that we wouldn't otherwise and sort of like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Like that's something I could definitely, uh, you know, use or, or, or kind of spin this way or whatever. Yeah. So um, every now and then we'll make a video and some comment will pop up and it's like, ah, crap. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so what, the we worst really thing. want to hear from you guys. Yeah, that's the worst feeling is when you, yeah. you release a video and then like there's a comment that like either gives a brilliant point or, or shows a contradiction or something. And it's like, oh, man, like, how did I not think of that? Or 
Um, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that this was the case or whatever. Um, it's just nice to be as informed as possible. And so, you know, bounce, bounce your ideas our way too. So yeah. we can see what you guys think of this stuff. I like what Riker's beard just said. Could the way stories are traditionally told have more to do with the trope than just the past hundred years? And that's, that's what I'm going to dive into for the most part. Uh, when I oh, cover yeah. this in a video is the way that stories have been told that has shaped Japan's culture to the point that, you know, the past is so important to them. Well, how, how, when did they start using amnesia so predominantly? That's mm. another question I would ask. Like, that's the kind of thing use... I had a hard time finding out in my research yeah. because the show amnesia was always in the search <laughs> results. Did, did they have a lot of amnesia stories in like the freaking 18, 1700s in like feudal Japan? Did they tell I mean, amnesia stories back then? Or is this to, like something that's only seeing, that we're only seeing like blossom and flourish or since World War II? Right. Well, that. Because that could be yeah. a, like a home run connection for you, right? If, if that's the yeah. case. It would be awesome. And if somebody is aware of that kind of stuff, of any documents that show... Uh, amnesia being important to Japanese or Asian, Korean, Chinese storytelling, please let me know. Discord or YouTube comments or wherever. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Tyler is asking, right. just tuned in, will this be the new regular timing for the podcast? Yes, Sunday afternoons Yep. are going to be when we'll be streaming it live. It will be uploaded uh, to all of the audio sources and to YouTube on Wednesday. So, um but if you want to watch them live, you'll have to watch them here on Twitch. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyways, by the way, anyone who is listening to this later or who is watching this on YouTube, follow our Twitch channel. Link will be in the description. Um, I'll be doing some more gameplay streaming on Twitch as well. Um, Final Fantasy Fridays is going to make a return. Um, you know, still kind of working out what what we want to do for our book club. Um if you go to our Discord, again, plugging Discord, <laughs> go to Discord. We have channels in there for um, for the book club. That's where I'll keep people updated on when that's going to start. We are going to be starting with the first Witcher novel, well, chrono chronologically, uh, The Last Wish. Um, so that's the first book we're going to be reading. But I, I haven't like totally decided yet on whether we're just going to burn through that series straight through or whether we'll alternate, like we'll finish The Last Wish, switch to a different book, then come back and do, uh, you know, sort of Destiny or something. Depends on if the, the writer wants to sue us. Right. But um, additionally, uh, because that could be a problem. Well, I don't know. It depends on how we cover it. It's mostly going to be a discussion. I, I don't think we'll be reading it straight through or anything like that. But um, in any case, uh, I'm thinking about ways where you guys can suggest things you'd like to read and we can kind of vote on it so that you guys can have some say. And we'll kind of alternate. We pick one. You guys pick one maybe. Um, I, I want to try and get through a book in no no longer than one month. So like – no, spending no longer than one month on a single book, basically. So anyways, there's still details to try to figure out, but we are going to start a book club. We will be doing that probably on Twitch. Videos may come to YouTube. It just depends. We got to really feel this out and figure it out. Yeah. Okay. We'll see. Uh, real, real uh, Dracula says, I just started Last Wish today, Mike, on chapter three and loving it. I love it, dude. I love it too. I can't wait to talk about you guys. Okay. Um, so. Uh, are you are you good? Uh, I mean, I, I probably talked for way too long. Um, anyways, 
But so I just want to make sure that you had uh, touched on everything you wanted to. I mean, I touched on what I wanted, and I guess um, I, I, I just want to emphasize, I will be reading the comments. Please let me know if you have any expertise in this area. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, so um, my thoughts on this topic that I'm going to talk about are extremely unorganized, and it's part of the reason why I didn't get a video done a couple weeks ago. Like I made a tweet about it. I was like, sorry, there's no video this week because mm -hmm. I was out of town that weekend, but I was planning on doing this and I was really trying to think it through. But like, I just, my mind was so, it's just in a million places. I couldn't like really come to a central focal point, like a, a real thesis for this that I could hammer and like really focus on. And it's just, there's so many things to talk about. I couldn't really narrow it in any way. So uh, pardon me if I'm a bit, um, I guess like uh, scatterbrained in, in the way I talk about this, but it's been something that's been on my mind a lot recently. Uh, this is partly because I'm writing my own novel and I'm editing it and trying to like um, refine my dialogue um, and trying to think about like, what, what is it that makes dialogue good? Like what is good dialogue versus bad dialogue and what makes bad dialogue bad to begin with? Um, I have been, I'll just show you guys a lot of the the stuff I've been looking at here. Um, Robert McKee is a beast. I love him. I love his thoughts on writing. Um, he's one of the most well-known, I guess, uh, gurus on storytelling and writing in general. But uh, I also watched this this channel called Diane Callahan. I guess that's just the name of the person. But this video called Writing Subtext in Dialogue, I thought that this was really informative. Um, you guys should definitely check out that video. Um, we got this one from Now You See It. The channel is called Now You See It, called Dialogue and Film, How Should Characters Talk? Um, really liked that. That's a shorter video, about six minutes long. But he also references Channel Criswell, which I think is this one here. Uh, Channel Criswell Extra. The, the video is unlisted now, but the, it was called The Social Network Designing Dialogue. You can get to this video through the Now You See It video. They have a link to it. So you can go and, and check that out. This was really good. This was more in-depth, about 18 minutes, about uh, designing dialogue, how Aaron Sorkin uh, sort of like approached dialogue in the social network. Um, then we've got this video from NerdWriter on uh, what realistic uh, film dialogue sounds like. Um, super cool video. And so a lot of my ideas are probably going to be a, a mishmash of what some of these people are saying. So I want to give them their due credit because they've made good points and I'll probably adopt some of their thoughts eventually into whatever video I make. Um, uh, Robert Wiersema is another uh, guy that I was uh, looking at. He had some good ideas. So anyways, just wanted to point to those so that people um, know kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, the people I've been watching and where the ideas are coming from a little bit. Gosh, dang it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I'll try really hard. Okay. These are essentially boiling down my sort of, like because there's a lot of things. You're going to listen to Robert McKee. He's going to give you like 10, uh, you know, 10 ideas 
on like what to avoid in writing dialogue, right? Like a whole like lesson series, like 10 things. And another guy will give you like an, a couple of other things. And so there's definitely more than a few things. <laughs> there's, there's many, many, many things you can do to improve your dialogue or things you can point at to demonstrate bad dialogue. And I'm only going to really go over like four of them that I think are like the big basic keys. If you can start here, you're on a really good track to, to inc like just dramatically improve your dialogue. Um, and so we're gonna, I'm going to go over um, how dialogue should reveal character and should foreshadow conflict, right? Like don't just have dialogue in there for no reason just because people are having conversation hi how are you i'm great how are you doing just fine how have things been going at the <laughs> store things at the store have been good well i don't know i have some fears about this or that oh why you know like th that kind of dialogue that serves no purpose in foreshadowing conflict or revealing anything about the characters that's one thing I'm going to touch on. This is part of why nobody ever says goodbye when they hang up on the phone. They just <laughs> hang up. Because it's like useless dialogue. Cut it. You don't need yeah. to say bye. Just hang up. Yeah. Um, number two, uh, subtext. Subtext refers to the meaning behind what you say. We often, very, very often do not say exactly what we mean. And there are many, many reasons for this. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll go over that a little bit when I dive into it in more detail. But subtext is so important. Having your characters always say exactly what they're thinking completely on the nose all the time is, uh, is not... I'll get into why, but it's not, it's not a good approach. It's not very believable. Um, number three, avoiding as you know scenarios so two people who are completely aware of the situation expositing information that they are both completely aware of and uh, the only reason they're saying it is because the audience needs to know and so that's called as you know dialogue right. uh, number four and the last one i'll be going going over is avoiding repetition so saying the same thing in very similar language many many times over um, you will dramatically diminish the impact of what you are saying the more you repeat something. And this has to do with the law of diminishing returns. There's two, two, two um, academic uses of the term law of diminishing returns. One is an economic sense. We've mm -hmm. talked about that a lot with yeah. these development teams are way too big. And the more, developer, or the more developers you bring in, you think you get more work done, but eventually you run into law of diminishing returns. You can't manage yeah. that many people. But I'm talking about the psychology term law of diminishing returns which is the more something is repeated the less impact it has the less we enjoy it um okay so those are kind of the four main things i'm going to be discussing now one kind of just like random thought that i've had while i'm taking a shower brushing my teeth getting ready in the morning you know just kind of like thinking to myself i've been thinking about like the human experience like what makes it unique from any other animal on the planet hmm. um and i think that what really distinguishes or, or what really sets apart humans is our just t total genius for pattern recognition right hmm. our our ability to not only recognize that things are happening in patterns but then use that data to predict patterns in the future um, I talked about this a, a little bit 
uh, in the video that I did, uh, Mass Effect, Power of a Great Soundtrack, with oh, yeah. uh, rhythms, right? Um, other primates are not able to predict rhythms. Like, if you if you have, like, a, a metronome, doop, 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 it takes humans, like, they can almost instantaneously sync, like, mm. clapping to that metronome. Um, other primates are not able to do that. They only uh, react to the beat. So when they hear it, they try to react as quickly as they can. So they're not actually in sync because they're not predicting the next beat, right? So that is very um, a very uh, unique uh, part of the human experience is our our ability to see patterns and then predict where they're going. And I don't want to talk about sports too much. We've already talked about the Dallas Cowboys a bit earlier, <laughs> right? But I, I'm fascinated by sports talk shows and, and talk radio mm. because they are always trying to convince you that they know what's going to happen, right? right. The, the, the fascination behind predicting who's going to win the game. That's coming up. The big game on on Saturday or Sunday or whatever. Uh, Eagles, Cowboys, uh, Patriots, Packers. Who's going to win? And these guys who are experts, right? Right. They get up there and they tell you all the reasons why the Green Bay Packers are going to beat the New England Patriots on Sunday. And they're going to point to data. They're going to point to – they get obsessed with with statistics. And now why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Why are they pouring over this data? Because – we're obsessed with patterns. The only way that the universe around us can make sense is if yeah. we recognize the patterns and we can yeah. predict what's going to happen next. And then we understand why it happens the way it does. And the mm. more we understand, the more we know, then we can predict any anything bad that might happen and avoid it. And it's a survival mechanism yeah. in human beings. It's even how we see. Yeah, yeah. we survived. We evolved primarily because we are genius pattern recognizers. Mm. So we are obsessed with that. And, and we, we live our lives through the prism of recognizing patterns. Now, what makes sports so compelling is that despite the fact that we have all the data and mm. everything points to predicting something in this way, we're almost never right about it. We're surprised constantly. And... We love that because, again, it's, it's, it's stimulating for us to see new patterns, new patterns arise so that we can be aware and try to, like, shift our ability to predict and, and refine our ability to predict to the point where we can feel, again, it, 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 I think it's a, a biological survival mechanism. The more I am able to predict accurately, the better I can survive in life. Uh, not only survive, but um, excel. The, the, the more expertise I have, like the, the better my situation becomes. So, but we love surprises because it, it disrupts that and we have to pay attention to that. And we really got to find out, okay, why did it happen? Let's recap, you know, all the highlights. Uh, <laughs> this yeah. is what happened in the game. And this so is- So then you this, can predict the next one. <laughs> yes, so that you can refine your ability to predict. Yeah. Now- this is also this is what's so fascinating about it to me is that in storytelling, we love to be surprised. We don't want to be able to predict what's coming next. Um, and so, again, because that's interesting, 
We can learn from that. And that's what we're, that's what stories are for. Stories were created to teach something to the audience. The, the, the storyteller is trying to communicate something that they've noticed, a pattern they've recognized in the world, whatever it might be, to the audience. And, and, and they can glean something from their experience and, and adapt that to their own way that they're seeing the world and seeing the patterns, right? This also leads into tribalism, something I, I want to do video on as well. You know, this group of people thinks they interpret the patterns this way. And this group of people, they interpret the patterns this way. They have a disagreement on the interpretation of the, the science, the patterns, the observations, and these people predict that this is the reason why, and these people predict this is the reason why, and they, they have infighting over it, and the whoever, whichever group you join that has the best ability to predict, then you're going to win and you're going to survive. Anyways, this is way scatterbrained, but like I've been thinking about this stuff. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and being able to recognize the patterns in human speech and conversation that allow the storyteller to believably sort of recreate, not recreate, but create fictional situations that feel real, even though they're not. And that, that's really the whole point of storytelling, and especially in uh, visual mediums. I think we just lost Case in there. Hopefully he'll reconnect, he'll reconnect here. And just, okay, he's back. Okay. So, um, hold on, I, I lost it. Okay, sorry. Where was I going with that? Dang it, I just had it. Um, tribalism. So I was getting away from tribalism talking about, oh, oh storytelling is about creating uh, what's called the um, suspension of disbelief, right? Mm, right. So yep. you, you walk in there and, you, and the, the goal of, uh, so let's say at the movie theater, is that you're going to forget very quickly, you're going to sort of melt away from where you are currently sitting. You're going to forget I'm sitting in a chair inside of a theater with a couple hundred other people surrounding me and I got my popcorn and my drink you know, next to me. You lose the perception of where you are and you melt into the story and you, you are immersed into it, right? And that there are techniques, very specific techniques of storytelling that are more effective than others at sort of getting people to just really like connect with the characters and feel as if they are in a new world, in a new place, following new people. Uh, and, and this is true for novels. This is true for uh, video games as well, right? Im immersion. So what are the techniques for dialogue that help people sort of melt into that? Okay, so the Nerd Writer video that I had referenced a little while ago um, talks about the differences between the way people talk in real life versus the way that people talk in movies. And there's a pretty stark difference. I mean, people are razor, they have razor sharp wit in the movies and they just always know what to say and they don't stumble over their words. They don't use a lot of filler like, um, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, th those sorts of things that mm -hmm. they don't stumble on their words. They don't mispronounce words very often, especially like in rousing speeches. You know, it's just like the dude yeah. is supposed to be like drawing this spontaneous stuff, but he's just like beasting it, like no mistakes yeah. all the way through. <laughs> Right. Yeah. That's not realistic. But at the same time, uh, conversations so often just 
are are very circular and go nowhere and because it's a it's a huge struggle communication is a really huge struggle if you think it at at a its base level we have an idea in our mind that we want to convey to the other person and we're using language to varying success depending on the person's grasp of vocabulary the person's ability to express themselves well to communicate that thought or idea to the other person and often the, it doesn't get through and the person's confused or um, interprets it incorrectly and thinks that they're saying another thing and goes like and takes the conversation in the wrong direction it's like no 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 that's not what i meant and and you you talk past each other for a really long time until eventually you sort of refine and come to the idea and hopefully can like understand what people are talking yeah. about but it's a real struggle and and uh one thing that robert mckee uh challenged some people to do is to take like a recorder with you and be careful with this you don't want to record people who you know against their will without their knowledge or something like that but to take a recorder with you and record a conversation with another person and then go back and transcribe that word for word into a script and look at what dialogue realistic dialogue would look like and uh, you'll be surprised at how often people interrupt each other how often people just are not eloquent in the way that they speak can't really right. put their thoughts together coherently it, it they're talking in circles they're going nowhere it gets boring it's like what is the point of this non sequiturs oh man non sequiturs come up so often i was so surprised by this when i really paid attention to it yeah. you're talking in a conversation and the person will just like just bail on the topic <laughs> and just like completely start talking about something unrelated oh yeah by the way blah 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 a, a thought a thought popped in their yeah. head. I've got to say this right now and just derails the conversation happens yeah. all the freaking time. Hmm. These are all That's something Aaron Sorkin is actually pretty good at including in his. Scripts. Yes. And, and this is what I want to get into as part of the, the first topic that I was going to discuss, which is again, we're not going for realistic dialogue because you, you have a conversation that lasts an hour on its own. You have a two-hour format yeah. for a movie. You can't have one conversation go for an hour. So you have to tell us relevant information that foreshadows conflict and that tells us something about the characters. I think that's the key. That's the real key. I think a lot of people think that dialogue is for pushing the story forward. It's about expositing right. information that we need to set up the conflicts and get into those conflicts and, and eventually go to a resolution. And so the dialogue is there. It exists. It's written in order to give us the, the needed information, basically exposition. But I think the more important element actually is that dialogue should be an action of the character that tells us about who they are so that they don't have to tell us with on-the-nose you know, explanatory text this is my name. This is what I feel about this. This is why I do this. This, it's yeah. sh that we should get that information through subtext, which is the next thing. But the dialogue should not just tell us outright all the time because that's not very believable. That's not very credible. We don't go around announcing everything we think and feel. We use our words and we have subtext or submeaning underneath that. And we can glean from the character through how they speak, through what they choose to say, what it is that they're all about, who they are. Okay? So 
writers like Aaron Sorkin, like the Coen brothers, who mm-hmm. I'm going to use some examples from, they use non sequitur dialogue. It feels like a non sequitur, right? right? It feels like this person's just saying this out of nowhere and that it, it's not relevant to the scene. It seems that way, but it's actually not. It's actually foreshadowing a conflict. Uh, if you guys have not seen Burn After Reading, mm-hmm. it's one of my favorite dark comedies of all time. I really, really, really like Burn After Reading. Um, oh, shoot. I've got to open up this real quick and pull it up here. Bop, 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 bop. Okay. Um, I'm going to play a couple of clips um, from Burn After Reading to sort of like demonstrate some of this. Um, so I think that, yeah, this clip right here, I have a con- I'm going to pull it over here so you guys can actually see it. So this is, uh, George Clooney, the character that he plays. Um, there's a little bit of context for this. So the, the redhead here and George Clooney are having an affair. She's there next to Malkovich. Uh, they're, they're married. George Clooney and his wife are also here at this party, but Redhead and, and Clooney here are having an affair. But um, anyways, there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on. I'm kind of dropping you right in the middle of this. But listen to uh, the dialogue here. First of all, how they interrupt each other a lot. You'll notice how they, they kind of just like steer off in other directions and people are talking over each other a lot. That leads to some credibility for natural conversation. And what's interesting to me is that when I was looking at the script for Burn After Reading, they wrote that in. That's not just... Um, improv- improvisation from the actors. That's not just a performance thing where they're, they're kind of like talking over each other and improvising a conversation. That was written in to, you know, they, they cut off what the actor is saying and then this actor comes in and says a different thing. So that's one thing that leads to the credibility uh, to the ear of the audience in the dialogue. But in addition to that, listen to kind of like what they're talking about. It seems so pointless. Why are they saying this, right? I have a condition where mm-hmm. I'm going to anaphylactic mm-hmm. shock. When I, mm-hmm. <coughs> like, Harry works in the marshal service, mm-hmm. does Oh, I'm on the legislative side. I work with Senator Hobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was with Treasury dealing with the Homeland mm-hmm. Security. I'm with the marshals now. If you want, he'll show you his great big gun. That's <laughs> <laughs> big funny. Gun's no big deal. 20 years of marshal service, I never discharged my weapon. Okay, so it seems like it's just small talk. It seems like there's nothing to it. Uh, Talking about um, being in the martial service, uh, you know, um, uh, the one character there says, uh, um, what is his name? Osborne Cox is the name of Malkovich's character. Osborne Cox says, you know, kind of um, condescendingly, if you want, he can show you his big old gun. And he's like, that's very funny. No, no, no. Uh, 20 years of martial service, I never discharged my firearm. Right. And it's like, why, why are you saying that? What's the purpose of talking about what does this conversation mean in relation to the story? He actually brings it up again later on in a scene with another character that dinner. And he says kind of the same things, but you notice his mannerisms too, right? He's very nervous. He's kind of like scatterbrained talking about a place, talking about, he's like eating this. Are you sure this is goat cheese? He's just, he's kind of like, oh, he's a very eccentric character, very nervous um, mannerisms and everything like that. And the way he speaks, the writing sort of like indicates this scatterbrained nervousness um, on being uncomfortable a little bit. But he he continually shows this kind of vibrato 
and this sort of like this false sense of um, self-assurance and security. And he continually says things like, I've never discharged my firearm. You got you, I, you gotta, you, the training kicks in. You got to keep your cool and everything like that. Right mm-hmm. now, spoilers, if you haven't seen the movie, you really should not listen to this for the next 20 or 30 seconds because it it's a huge thing later on, a very huge surprise that would potentially ruin the moment. Later on, he's, you know, showering at home and uh, um, Brad Pitt is hiding in the closet for reasons I won't get into. And he comes walking into the closet and sees Brad Pitt there, freaking loses his mind and just shoots the guy right in the face. And just, just like turns around and runs away from the situation and, and is like losing his, oh, 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 like totally freaking out, mm-hmm. right? And all of this dialogue that seems to be non sequitur, that seems to be not important, is all set up to tell us about this character. He thinks or he wants to believe he's in control, that he, he knows what he wants in life, that he's confident. But all of his actions, the way he says things, indicate the total opposite of that. And the fact that he's uh, in this relationship with this person, he keeps telling them, assuring them, you know, like, yeah, our relationship's rock solid. You know, like, everything's good. But then at the same time, he's having affairs with, like, a bunch of different women, right? And so, like, the dialogue is saying one thing, and this hints into subtext, but we're, but what he really means is something else. And so this is all really important to lend to the credibility to the ear of the audience, because this is, this is how we speak in real life. We very rarely say, not, not very rarely, but we often don't say what we mean, right? And there can be several reasons for this. We're implicit in, we're saying this thing, but implicitly we mean something different. It could be because we don't want someone to know what we're thinking. So we're being purposely deceitful. You know, we're lying, just straight up lying. Uh, it could be because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. You know, the classic wife, do I look fat in this dress? And you say, oh, you look, you look great in that dress. It looks great on you, but you don't necessarily <laughs> mean that, you know, you're not being completely truthful because you don't want to hurt that person's feelings. There's subtext in what you said. Um, it could be because, uh, you think that the other person should know what you feel or think, Right. Um, I, you'll get this all the time in relationships where someone's being passive aggressive. They're saying this, but what they really mean is they're being scathing or condescending or something because they think you should know what they're feeling and they want you to admit you're wrong to them, but they're not going to come right out and confront you about it and be direct. They're going to say it in all of these kind of ways where they talk around the issue. Yeah. Um, uh, there could it could be because it's not socially acceptable to say exactly what's on your mind. So you hint at it in subtext. You're um, you're perhaps sarcastic or, uh, anyways. There's many many reasons. Maybe we're embarrassed to say what we think, so we avoid it. You know, you hang out with this group of friends and they're into sports and outdoorsy stuff, and and you don't want to talk about the fact that you just came from some. I don't know, a uh, land party where you were freaking playing Final Fantasy or something like that. Like, oh, where were you? Oh, man, I was just hanging out with some friends. And, you know, we like we were we were doing this and that. And you're not you're not being completely truthful in what you say. What you say is different from what you mean. Um, same thing comes to uh, like flirting between, uh, you know, people who are interested in each other. Often you're saying something with 
an innuendo or a secret meaning underneath that. So subtext is such a huge part of how we talk to each other. We don't just communicate with the words, we communicate with the tone of voice. We communicate with expression on the face and with body language that hints at a different meaning. There's all kinds of ways that we communicate. And so when you're writing dialogue, keeping all of that subtext in mind, those other forms of communication are really important. And to suggest that the character means something else, even when they say this is, is uh, really important for it to sound believable. Again, not necessarily realistic, but believable, right? Like that line of dialogue there from George Clooney seemed like a non sequitur, seemed like it wasn't important. But that entire conversation was, especially when you watch it in context of the movie, is riddled in subtext. And on top of that, um, it's foreshadowing an event coming up and telling us something important about the character. I'm going to pause for a minute because I'm sure there's been lots of comments. And if you want to yeah. add anything to that, let's hear what people are saying. Well, there's, there's this one, which is, uh, you haven't connected everything together yet, but based on the title of this stream, <laughs> yeah. Um, some people kind of get what you're, what you're getting at. So Karen SSJ um, is saying, uh, but in story, you don't always have real life dialogue in some stories lyric dialogue suits better animes have their dialogues influenced by japanese movie dialogues it's not bad but different now you kind of alluded to the way mm -hmm. uh movies used to be done uh, the silent films in japan yes i'll get to um, that sure but could you you know maybe address this a little okay bit? so um yeah uh, i want to reiterate the fact that realism is not i think ever necessarily the goal there are some exceptions in some more uh smaller like art films um in the nerd writer video that i referenced that film in particular was trying for real dialogue like real life conversations people talking over each other like constantly total non sequiturs mm. it was exploring the nature that was kind of like the theme of the movie it was exploring the the theme of like how we talk past each other what the, the the difficulty in communication that was like the whole point of the film and and it kind of like follows this family that really struggled to connect but most of the time we're not gunning for real realistic dialogue right so yeah. you're right in saying that it's not necessarily real and and i don't think it should be real i don't think aaron sorkin's dialogue is realistic i don't think the cohen's brothers dialogue in this movie is realistic dialogue it is credible however because everything we're hearing is important. Everything in that conversation was done for a reason. There isn't any true non sequiturs, but it feels that way. However, it's being used to set up an important event later and to tell us something very important about that character we need to know in order to really follow the theme of this movie, right? And so when you, when you have dialogue that doesn't have a hint of subtext in it, Characters always announce straight out exactly what they think and feel. And, and they're always very direct about it. And when they're talking about things that are not relevant to the plot, that are not going to foreshadow something important later, generally you're going to find yourself in a scene where people are saying things that they're talking around each other in ways that could even potentially be realistic, but which will lose the audience and, and get, become boring. Mm -hmm. Now, let's jump into why I want to talk about anime and JRPGs. Um, this is a common sentiment 
that I find from a lot of people that Japanese dialogue, especially in anime and especially in JRPGs, is really bad for the most part. And I've been trying to think about if I could point to any examples of why that is. Um, why, not why it is or isn't true that Japanese dialogue is bad. Again, I don't think anyone can like definitively say that, right? Because so right. much of it is subjective. But why is it true that people perceive it that way in the West? What is the difference between what they're doing and what we're doing in examples like I just showed to why, I mean, because let's be honest, there's lots of movies with terrible dialogue in the West. Like right. plenty of awful, awful dialogue in the West. This is not meant to be an exercise of saying the Japanese are terrible at dialogue and the West is really good at dialogue. There are, there's a spectrum everywhere. It's not all. Hashtag not all. Um, there, there are examples of brilliant, brilliant dialogue being written for film and uh, all kinds of things in Japan. I just got done playing Vagrant Story. The freaking dialogue mm. is spectacular in that yeah, game. Yeah, it's actually really good. A lot of it has to do with the localization because the, the, the style of language is different between them. In, in the Japanese version, it's very modern Japanese. And in uh, the English version, it's very Shakespearean. So they, they took some liberties there. But even the Japanese text, the modern-ish sort of language they're using, it's still good dialogue, really, really solid dialogue. Um, that follows these principles, that foreshadows conflict, that is filled with subtext, all the stuff I'm talking about. So it's not, I'm not saying that Japanese can't do this. It's not, it's not all. What I'm saying is, is that there is a sentiment from Western players that anime and JRPG dialogue tends to follow a pattern, right? Pattern recognition right. tends to follow a pattern of being uh, suboptimal, below average, uh, a bit uh, cringeworthy to use the the hot term that the kids use nowadays, right? <sighs> so yeah. why is that? I was really trying to, to get into that. I, I saw some people discussing this on a Reddit forum, and they were talking about how um, the, the era of silent film affected Japan very differently than mm -hmm. it did in the West. Um, in the West, you'd go to a silent film and they, they'd have some action on the screen. The actors would do their thing. You'd have the musician playing the, the piano and then they'll cut to a screen with the dialogue that they say and then they'll kind of move on. But the, the, the music was sort of like the auditory experience. The, the um, musician would sort of like dictate the emotions of the characters through music. In Japan, it was very different. Uh, in Japan, they had um, what's called a benshi. Uh, which is essentially a Japanese performer. Actually, I'll kind of switch to my screen here so you guys can see the article I'm looking at. Uh, a Japanese performer who provided live narration for silent films. Um, so they would have a person, a performer, actually get up and narrate slash act out the actions on the screen, which is very different experience from how they were doing it in the West. Um, and this kind of led to the Benchy being like the local celebrities for movies, even more so than the actors who appeared in the films themselves. And so in order to draw people to their performance, they would be very expressive and, and just like over the top. And this is what a lot of people theorize has led to the tendency in Japanese movies and in Japanese anime and things like that for that 
way over the top expressiveness that you see in the voices when someone's embarrassed in an anime i mean it's the most embarrassing thing in the freaking universe it's boom, like oh 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 yeah. and the bead of sweat and like the whole screen goes dark and their Sometimes eyes their get, eyes like, disappear and it's just a and shadow it's just like, <laughs> and it's just it's it's way exaggerated yeah. right and when someone's angry their head enlarges like by a hundred times and and they're yeah. down there screaming at the person rah, 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 and they're they're like they're gonna like freaking bite their head off like yeah. literally right so there is certainly i think a cultural difference in the approach to style between Japanese media and Western media. And there is probably a little bit more of an emphasis placed on believability, realism, and that kind of thing in the West, and more of a focus on trying to portray a very realistic conversation. Whereas in Japanese media, it's more about the style. It's more about... Yeah. How expressive can we be? Um, and I think that that is a, a, an interesting theory leading to sort of how we see the differences in this very over-the-top nature of anime and JRPGs versus the more subdued way of delivering stories in the West. Um, I don't know what people's thoughts are on that or if you have any thoughts on that case and if you know of any other cultural I guess reasons why this this you could see the discrepancy. I I do. Um and uh, some th this is one of, this is probably the biggest theme in the comments for this next for the past, you know, 10 minutes or so yeah. is it's it comes down to localization. One of the things I'd be curious to know and I've never actually looked into this myself despite speaking Japanese, I don't speak it as well as someone who's lived there, right? Or or somebody who's born there. And so um it is still even difficult for me to really gauge um, level of like, I don't know, from a Japanese perspective, what I would want to know is, do they think anime has bad dialogue, generally speaking? That's good. Because question. a lot of this comes down to localization. And, you know, they speak in riddles, like <laughs> Japanese people speak in parables all the time. They speak in um, like, uh, oh, what sort of proverbs. They mm. speak in like j just ways that we in the West don't actually ever 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 use okay occasionally but usually it's old people it's it's considered a mark of great wisdom to you know be relaying a proverb down to somebody who's younger mm, but in japan sure. that is literally built into how they talk there's tons of like chinese poetry that's found its way into japanese everyday discourse that how the how do you translate that and how do you get that natural i, I put a lot of it on localization but it's entirely possible that japanese people themselves and this is something that people maybe in the comment section can can um talk about if you were born in japan or somebody who is native to japan do you think anime generally speaking has weird cringy or bad dialogue or is this basically our perception of the localization hmm. yeah and i don't know because again i just I, I saw this as being like a widely held sentiment it's just like Anime dialogue is cringy. Anime it, in in and of itself is cringy. It's in in like, some ways, yes. <laughs> there's like this huge sort of like, I guess, kind of shared feeling that I'm observing, okay, my pattern recognition <laughs> across yeah. uh, communities that uh, talk about this stuff is this growing sentiment of, um, you know, 
like harem shows where like the trope being like the character always has like a, just all these women that are surrounding like there's just all these patterns people are it's picking true, up true that aren't necessarily just yeah, yeah. that's kind of like structure not that just are dialogue. a bit cultural and structural hmm. right yeah but this doesn't necessarily i think or or i don't think in totality that it explains away the difference in dialogue I think it could have something to do with it for sure. I think that this could be one reason why dialogue is written the way it is, especially in its expressiveness and in its style. Um, But I still think there are certain things that you see commonly in a lot of anime and JRPGs that are just... uh, It's just, I guess, to me... It shows that they lack some understanding of some of these sort of common concepts. And this is kind of what I want to get into avoiding, as you know, dialogue and avoiding repetition. Um, And again, not all. I have to keep saying not all, right? Like I started watching just for the sake of um, just for the sake of uh, educating myself. I started watching Sword Art Online. Because this is a mm-hmm. an anime that is, I mean, hated on to such an astounding agree, degree. People just like, just rag on this anime like crazy. I think that even you yep. in one of your recent videos. Uh, I made a little made joke. Some, <laughs> made some jokes about Sword Art Online, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, okay, let me take a look at this dialogue and try to like see what's going on. Now, I haven't watched that much of it. I think I watched the first three episodes. And to my understanding, the beginning of the show isn't nearly as bad as where it kind of goes down the line. It gets a lot worse. It gets weird, yeah. And it's really strange, sort of totally changes direction. And and so structurally Mm -hmm. it has issues, kind of like we were talking about, right? But there are a couple of things I noticed about the dialogue that I see a lot in Japanese stuff. In and most particularly in anime, manga, and and uh, and JRPGs, and that is, as you know, exposition, which happens all the freaking time, and it's really annoying. So in the beginning, he's sort of sparring with this kid that he meets in the world, and he's sort of showing him some techniques, and he like kicks him in the balls or something, and he falls over, and he's like, oh. Hurts a bit, and he's like, "Hey, man, you can't feel anything in this world, uh, don't you?" They even say specifically, "Remember, you can't feel anything in this world." Right. And he goes, "Oh yeah, I can't. Huh? I guess I'm just used to reacting that way." And he stands up, <laughs> and they go back to their conversation, right? Yeah. The only reason that they chose to write those words into the script was to tell us, the audience. People can't feel pain in this world. That was the point they wanted to get across. They wanted you to understand people do not feel pain in Sword Art Online. In the game, they do not feel any pain. They chose to deliver that information through about the cheesiest, lamest, as you know, dialogue that I can possibly think of. It's just not good writing. It's bad writing. To have a person for absolutely no reason, acting as if they are in pain when they really don't feel any pain and both people are aware that they don't feel any pain and then the one person has to describe to the person who is not experiencing any pain, hey, by the way, you're not experiencing pain right now. Remember? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's 
terrible dialogue. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's horrible. Yeah, that's um, pretty bad. And I feel like a lot of JRPGs from series like the Tales series, from, say, Xenoblade Chronicles 2, that have sort of like, that fit into that style of anime, like shonen anime, they tend to have this a lot. Um, if you, Another... another a hilarious example. I don't know if you've seen uh, Corridor Digital's um, anime baseball video, Casey. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've okay. seen it. Yeah, it hilariously, hilariously parodies yeah. this common trope that you see in anime, especially in, in shows like uh, Dragon Ball Z. You have the two mm-hmm. characters who are fighting, and they're talking about what they're going to do, and they're talking about the power level, and then they start fighting, and something happens, and uh, Goku gets kicked really hard, and he goes flying into the ground, and there's a huge explosion, and then you always, I mean, literally always in the show, you have the spectator characters who stand off in the distance and are watching this, and they have to commentate on what they just saw and explain to you why it's bad. So we can't just see that Goku is losing and that Frieza is really powerful, and maybe he can't handle it, and his power, he's de- his power level is decreasing, he's losing energy. We see that clearly in the animation. The animation, I feel, is actually pretty good in the show. They do oh, a yeah. good job visually at showing you really strong levels of power. But then we have to take a break from that and come over here to the spectator characters who go, oh, Goku's losing, and this is why that's bad, because if that's true, then, oh my god! They they, freak out, right? And they have to explain everything you just saw in detail. (laughs) And in the anime baseball video by Corridor Digital, they, they, they hilariously parody this, where they, they have the guy who's at bat, and he has his internal dialogue about what he wants to do, and then he swings and misses. He's like, oh, no! And then they go over to the other, and they're like, oh, no, he's using a, you know, a junk ball. That's illegal. That's against the rules. And they're, like, explaining everything. It's so funny. You I guys do have a thought on that, actually. Because the way anime started, you know, the way the um, first was Astro Boy or some of the original anime that were first, like, being put out by Japan. Uh-huh. The whole, like, concept behind the this particular take on, on the animation medium was to use as little actual work, do as little work as possible, to, to do as little animating as possible. You mm-hmm. repeat frames. You reuse, um, you know, assets over and over and over and over. And... Um, in a, in a show like Dragon Ball Z, it's like you've got the action, right? Mm-hmm. But to save on resources and time, it actually is better to repeat frames over and over and over <laughs> so that you can kind of show him powering up and you can repeat those frames for actually a long time so you can keep coming back to it and then yeah. have that interspliced between people talking, right? So you can have a fight happen and it'll take you X number of resources for X number of hours and, you know, or you can, you know, maximize the length. You can freeze time and show everyone's reactions and then show it again. And then you go to commercial break. And then when it comes back, you show it again just to make sure everyone knows what's going on. And then people's reactions again. And then you have the thing happen. Whereas if you just had it happen, you would have a lot more to animate um, relative to the length of a 20 minute show, as opposed to to you've got this one battle that takes five episodes, but you're really repeating the same frames over and over and over and over. I wonder if that affected the way anime is today because of how it used to be and how they, the tricks that they did to get around having to animate too much. Yeah. I think that that's definitely a, one of 
one of the other major reasons, right, is that they're, they're filling the show with filler text, expository dialogue, as you know dialogue, for the purpose of reducing the amount of work that would have to go into filling a 30 second or 30 minute show full of legit fighting <laughs> yeah you know and and, and actually like well paid which is dragon exposition. ball z right <laughs> yeah so yeah. It, it could be a budget issue but this but mm. the show became so popular that mm. it, it just kind of got adopted that style of writing just sort yeah, of got adopted into everything it just like yeah. every everyone started copycatting it because it was so popular and it saves money yeah and it saves money so it's it's kind of mm. like a you know now someone in the comments uh, let me scroll up to it here. Um, it's this comes from King Me Jonah. Not to defend Sword Art Online too much, but that was probably also meant as a joke for the younger demographic. This is actually something okay. I also wanted to touch on: is mm. the fact that you don't get subtext like brilliant, subtle subtext in uh, Barney and Friends, uh, and there's a reason right. for this. It's because children don't understand subtext. It's right. the reason why. Um, in movies like from Pixar, right? It's, it's a part of the reason why their writing is so brilliant because they need to write something that be, can be clearly understood by the kids who are watching, but that also can speak in ways that excite the parents who are taking the kids to the show where they can get something from it. Now, the older you get, the more subtext is interesting because you, again, you already understand the patterns of that that they that you watched when you were watching Barney and Friends growing up, when you were watching freaking all those cartoons as a kid, and they were very explicit with the theme, and all the dialogue told you exactly what they meant to say. Is because the kids need that. They they need that in order to understand the moral of the story, to under to understand the theme, to learn the lesson that they're meant to learn from the story. So you are force fed that throughout your adolescent years and eventually it starts to become boring and predictable because your ability to predict patterns has developed and become stronger and the older you get the more boring explicit dialogue becomes because it's like i know where this is going i've seen this five million times right i want something to surprise me i want to learn something different that i don't already know and so sometimes the demographic of the show leads to the dialogue being written the way it is as well because you know even let's say it's written for teens like teens are not going to be able to uh, to grasp the same level of subtext as a fully developed adult so you still have to be a bit more explicit in a shonen anime in how you uh how you have your characters talk so that it will be more clearly understood by the audience that is is the target market for this so i think that's another reason right so i i meant to keep track of these we have the the benchy uh expressive Mm. nature of um the way that japanese media has evolved from more of the theater side than from like the photography realism side then you have um budget constraints uh and and trying to fill in time in a 30-minute segment with filler text I don't think it's a great excuse, but budgetary constraints that led to some shows like Speed Racer and um, Dragon Ball being very popular and then just tons of copycats arose from that. Then you have 
obviously the demographic of the show, trying to make sure that the target demographic can clearly understand all of the points they need to understand, right? So we all grew up with these anime and with these video games. And when we experienced them at the time, they were created for us. And we were like, man, this is amazing. This is freaking amazing. Right. This is so good. I watched Yu Yu Hakusho. I thought it was the sickest show of all time. I Yu watched Yu that. Show. I watched that now, and yeah. it's like, dude, this is riddled with atrocious dialogue. Yeah. But again, it's because it lacks it lacks subtext. <laughs> it has tons of as you know dialogue, tons of on the nose dialogue. And for me, I've grown older, and I've learned to appreciate more subtext in the stuff that I watch. So it's like. I don't like it as much anymore. It's too predictable. It's too silly. It's too, it's not credible to me anymore. It's not natural. It doesn't feel natural the way that people would actually speak to each other as it is in say the example from burn after reading that I was sharing earlier. Um, and so the target demographic, unfortunately left, I was left behind. (laughs) So when Xenoblade Chronicles two comes out and I'm sitting here just like, what? This is how people talk in this game? What? Like, I'm just sitting here, like, cringing the whole time at everything going on. Part of it is the fact that I'm a 31-year-old man now. I'm not, uh, I'm not a 13, 14-year-old. Now, I'm not trying to say that anyone who's in their adult years who enjoyed Xenoblade 2, I'm, I'm not saying that you're not a fully developed adult or anything like that or that you're wrong for enjoying it. All I'm saying is, is that there are patterns or ways that these shows and these games are written that I think um, it follows these patterns and it follows these tropes that can become extremely predictable. I think that that at least people can agree on to not to to not say anything about whether it's good or bad dialogue to say that this is you see this commonly. You see this all the time in anime. You see these kinds of tropes all the time in JRPGs. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, I've been talking forever, but avoiding repetition this is the very last point. And to use the same episode of Sword Art Online as an example, they realize that they can't log out of the game. So they go into, they get warped into like some sort of central location and the game master comes in and explains to them that this is done on purpose. Uh, if you die in the game, you die in real life. It basically explains the whole scenario for the show, right? Now, there's a very specific way in which he says this. He says something like, if they try to take off the headgear in the real world, there is a like a microwave signal that'll get like implanted into your, and it will destroy your brain, right? He uses the term, it will destroy your brain. Yeah. Then we come over to Kirito, who is asked a question by the characters with, I forget his name. And he's like, well, that can't be legit, right? That's not right. And Kirito explains, affirming, yes, it is. They are built this way with this microwave signal that can destroy your brain. Repeats it. Repeats the same thing a second time, affirming it. Then the game master comes back and explains again that if you die in the game, then this microwave signal is going to get sent and destroy your brain. And then there's a big, like, uh, musical hit there, like, like a big, like, bass hit. And it's like, oh, and everyone's like, oh, no. And it's supposed to be, like, really impactful. Like, oh, my gosh, if I die in the real world, if I die in this game, I'm going to die in the real world. 
But this is the third time they've said that, and that's the time they want it to have the most impact. Then they repeat the sentiment in different words, but the same thing right after that in an internal monologue from Kirito. If I die in this game, I'm going to die in real life. Dun, 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 then the music gets dramatic and it's like all swirling. and It's supposed to be like super intense. Hmm. Um, and this is something Robert McKee has talked about a lot. I talked about this a little bit even in my uh, Final Fantasy 13 discussion series, but repetition is a big problem I've seen in a lot of anime and in a lot of JRPGs, repeating the same sentiments and expecting that they will have the same or that they will carry the same impact every time you say them. Um, hero, the way that they use the word hero in Final Fantasy 13 comes to mind. We're the heroes. These people need heroes. We, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the hero, whatever. He says it like a million times, right? Mm. Um, and every time you say that, it sounds sillier and sillier and sillier every single time. And this has to do with the law of diminishing returns I was talking about earlier. In psychology, no. the more you repeat something, the less enjoyment honestly that you get out of it if there could be say a roller coaster that you really enjoy at a theme park and uh you go on that ride once woohoo that was really fun let's go do it again and you get on and do it again yeah that was awesome do it again and again and again and again and again and eventually it's going to lose its excitement for you you know exactly what's going to happen you've been through it a million times the law of diminishing and returns states that the more you repeat something, the less impact it has, the less you enjoy it. And the same is true um, in storytelling and in dialogue. Uh, the more you repeat a sentiment, the, the more people are going to start to go, uh, <laughs> you've already said that this is starting to get silly. This is starting to be kind of repetitive. Yeah. This is, and people stop taking you seriously. And in that one scene that may be like five minutes long, they repeated that sentiment that if you try to remove your headgear, if you try to escape, if you die in the game, you die in real life and your brain is going to be fried by a freaking microwave. They repeated that a bunch of times, but they really heavily emphasized it on the third and fourth repetition. And at that point, I'm going, geez, what, this is such a silly premise. Right. right. I'm, I'm turning my back on the credibility of the work in the opening freaking episode and in the opening scenario of the show because the dialogue is just very, very poorly written in that sense. Um, okay. I think I've gotten through what I want to say here. All right. I want to see what people's reactions to this are. Okay. So there have been a lot. Um, <clears throat> and I've been reading all of them. <laughs> but King <laughs> King Mijona has been saying Yu Yu Hakusho is still great in English, which is funny. <laughs> it all depends on what your memories I'm not, of it are. I'm not know? saying that the show is bad. I still kind yeah. of enjoyed watching it when I watched it six months ago or whatever. But I just noticed that I I didn't really appreciate the dialogue quite the same way that I did when I was yeah. a kid. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um. It's funny. Other people are are saying, um, you know, reaction shots are used as a result of the medium, right? Making things take a really long time. Um, You know, that's just kind of the way things have been done for a while. Um, Talking about somebody brought up SpongeBob as a show that has both explicit and subtext. Implicit meaning. As you get older, you read the subtext more and Mm -hmm. it's funny and interesting the way that Barney, Barney doesn't do, by the way, you know, it's a great example. Yeah. Great example. SpongeBob so, is hilarious because you pick up on stuff you did not see when you were a kid. Freaking the funniest show ever. 
Um, but then also um, one of the biggest points that people had a discussion about for a little while was uh, the Studio Ghibli films and how even yes. though, because you meant you read the comment where it was um, Sword Art Online is geared towards 8 to 16-year-olds, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Studio Ghibli films are geared towards like 6 to 15-year-olds. I don't people. know. It's probably, it's, there's a lot of overlap between the audiences of Ghibli and Sword Art Online. And Ghibli is basically never criticized for having poor dialogue. No. <laughs> and then, you know, Sword Art Online and a lot of the other animes, uh, typically shonen anime, uh, gets this heavy, heavy criticism for having really poor dialogue. And, yeah. you know, there, there's, there's a difference there because they're both anime, um, but somehow Ghibli can do it right in a way that, you know, a lot of the other studios have, have difficulty doing, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. And, and again, there's a spectrum. It's not going to be all right. Not all anime has bad dialogue. No. Not all, uh, Western, um, you know, more experimental films like the Coen brothers make have good dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the mastery of dialogue is, is very much a product of years and years and years of refinement um, and of, of being able to recognize the patterns of speech that people use in real life and removing the parts that are not necessary to move a, a story forward, but yeah. including them in ways that can foreshadow, that can set up important things, uh, but like still kind of create this like believable conversation between characters that tell us about who they are without explicitly stating who they are. So that we can sort of read a character by how they choose to speak, by, by their body language and all these other forms of communication that are subtext without them having to come out and state things that they wouldn't say in a natural conversation because everyone's aware of it and repeating sentiments over and over again um, and, and it can flow in a way that feels believable, credible and natural and that is very convincing. Uh, but at the same time is very purposeful and is very punctual and paced uh, very well. Yeah. Uh, Giga VSAV says inner monologues are common in anime, yes. but rare in Western shows. I find it entertaining, but some people don't. What's really funny is that th- this kind of goes along with like the soliloquy of Shakespeare from back 500 years ago, <laughs> 400 years ago, and how, um, you know, Western media used to, do this kind of stuff. I mean, a soliloquy is typically more on the, along the lines of like poetry rather than just, this is what I think. Um, but the monologues that anime has in all of their, um, you know, basically every anime does it. And you're always inside the character's head as they're restating what you just heard yep. um, <laughs> is something that plays will occasionally do. Musicals will definitely do. And that, uh, you know, Shakespeare did, as you know, one of the great innovators of, of, you know, modern storytelling. And so it's kind of funny because we don't in the West use them anymore. (laughs) Like very rarely do we, except for in musicals and other places I mentioned, but in anime, it's like, it's always there. So while, while in the West, it seems maybe a little bit cheesy, a little bit canned to, to go to break into a soliloquy about, you know, what you're thinking or a song or whatever, you know, in, in an anime, it's just it's just so common. I'm, I'm trying to think of exactly why that you know barrier was never put up over in the yeah. east, but it's definitely here in the west. Like we we'd rather watch. We don't tell me what you're thinking all the time. 
But yeah. the way things work in Japan, it's just a little bit different. I think it does have some carryover from the Kabuki theater and from the the way that the silent yeah. films were done. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I'm, this is kind of what I'm trying to put my finger on is yeah. um, I think we've put on our finger on like four, three or four things that, that could be that could explain the differences. But I wonder if there's anything else I'm missing in terms of like why um, Japanese dialogue is is different especially in yeah. things like, because again, there are movies being made in Japan that are very similar to, you know, in, in the way they're written to the things in the West. That's Vagrant true. Story, Vagrant Story is a great idea or a yeah. great uh, example. Vagrant Story is written and is paced and the storytelling is done very much in a Western style because right. I they're, they're telling a story that like the world is very much patterned after more of a, a, a Western European medieval setting. So, like, it's very consistent with, like, the world they're trying to create. And and the the direction that they gave to Alexander O. Smith in his translations and in his localization was to make it biblical, make it sound biblical. So they wanted him to use language that evoked that sense of, like, King James era, um, you know, like, Shakespearean style vocabulary. Yeah. So that's obviously the intention that Matsuno had when he was writing the story to begin with. But... You know, maybe it's just not uh, a great um, equivalent to write in maybe older Japanese or a samurai style Japanese. Ooh, that right? is what kabuki theater is traditionally. Yeah. It's, it's so, older style. So why would he write in modern Japanese for Vagrant hmm. Story, but it, but told the, the localization team to write in Shakespearean English? I do have you know a thought. I, mean? I do have a I do have something to say about that. So Kabuki theater is always almost always um, done in the old Japanese you know way of speaking. Several hundred years old. It's it's actually very difficult for even today young people in Japan do not understand Kabuki theater. There is they they put a headset on. And they will, and this is my understanding. I, I have learned this several times. And some people may say, oh, I'm from Japan and I get it. Okay, fine. But they speak a way that nobody talks in Japan anymore. And they actually have headsets that you can purchase. You put them on your ears and it translates the old Japanese that you're watching in the theater into modern Japanese that you're listening to in your headsets. So there, there is a, a the language of uh, the Japanese language has evolved more in the past few hundred years than the English language has. And even though they do try to preserve, like I remember um, seeing something recently, Emperor Hirohito, when uh, Japan um, surrendered to the United States at the end of World War II, uh, Emperor Hirohito gave a speech that was to the public and he didn't often do that, but it was for everybody to hear because he was renounce he was renouncing his um, divine right to rule basically. And he was claiming, you know, it's it's stuff that the United States had kind of coerced him into doing because that was the only way that Japan would actually surrender. And in that speech, he, he gave the speech, but my understanding is that most people in Japan today do, cannot hear that speech and know what he was saying. He was speaking in such a form of Japanese that just there's no real co- uh, comparison in English because nobody says anything in Middle English or Old English anymore. And mm-hmm. so there is, like, I would say that would be why, especially for a game like Vagrant Story that's marketed towards teenagers, you, you the Japanese equivalent of what we consider um, Shakespearean or Elizabethan, maybe not Elizabethan, um, King James English is 
just it, 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 young people in Japan do not understand it. It kind of needs mm. to be written in a bit of a more modern method. Yeah. yeah. So that would be kind of a sense. long way to answer to that question. No, I think that, that makes sense. I think, I think, I think there's sense. something to that, though. I think that makes sense. Uh, was there anything else people have brought up that you wanted to run by me? Uh, yeah. Some, a few people have talked about sexual tension and how it, it's, it's a way that they set it up in, in anime. And specifically, they talk about Xenobreak Chronicles, too. And people have been talking about a lot of stuff here. Sorry, I can't remember exactly all <laughs> what all of them are but on how um uh, on how on how uh, understanding what people are thinking in general i guess is how uh you build drama in some ways but they aren't saying if they said it to the other person then you have no drama because they're both on the same page but because you understand what this person's thinking and you understand what this person's thinking but they aren't necessarily saying it but you need to understand it at first and then the subtext oh, sure. can have a little bit more context, if that makes sense. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. That, that's, that's true, I mean, across the board. I mean, that's what leads to conflict. Uh, in almost every, like, really well-written scene where two characters are in conflict with each other, it's because we, they, are, they are on different um, pages with what they're thinking. And what they're saying, they're kind of talking past each other. They want the other person to understand them, but they're not taking the initiative to try and understand the other person. So they're talking past each other, but right. there are, I think there are better ways, more subtle ways, more powerful ways to help people understand what the person's thinking without jumping into their brain and having them explicitly explain it in an inner monologue and yeah. then, and then say something that they don't mean, you know, it, it, cause then, then you lose the power of the subtext because now. Reading what a person thinks and feels by their expression, by their tone of voice, by what they choose to say, by how close they choose to stand to the person they're talking. Are they being aggressive? Are they being passive? Being able to read the patterns of emotion in all of these other forms of communication outside of straight up language mm -hmm. is more believable. That's how we communicate in real life. I can never jump into Kaysen's brain and hear his internal monologue and understand that we have a difference of opinion and that what he's saying, he doesn't really mean that. He means this because that's impossible. So I have to be able to read in his body language, in his tone of voice, and in all these other things that he's actually upset with me. Yeah. And that I did something to offend him. And I need to address that, right? Even though he's saying, oh, no, man, everything's cool. I know actually, it's not cool because of, his, because of how he said it. <laughs> right. This actually reminds me a little bit of um, The Social Network. If you yeah. remember, basically like the opening scene of The Social Network where Mark Zuckerberg's talking with his girlfriend. And they're both talking past each other, <laughs> like heavy, heavy, heavy. But you mm -hmm. never really get a glimpse into their minds until like basically the end of the, the movie where the girl is like you you your brain is going so many places i can't like we can't we can't like talk and you're freaking crazy basically yeah. but you saw that ahead of time at the very beginning the very opening scene of the movie and they're both just like so not on the same page uh, but you didn't need any internal monologue to really get that it was pretty obvious Mm -hmm. It was very well written. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to explicitly be told in yeah. an inner monologue or through, as you know, dialogue or anything else, what the, what the character thinks and feels. And that's that. Yeah. 
is the mark of good writing. That's the mark of good dialogue where yeah. you, they don't have to say explicitly what a character thinks, feels, or wants, but you know it. And, and that is the art. That's the art that you really try to master. And I just, yeah. I don't see that level of subtext, that level of nuance in a lot of anime and JRPGs. And yeah. again, that might be because well, they're not speaking to me. They're speaking to right. 10 to 15 year olds. Could be for all the other reasons we mentioned, but I just, yeah. I think that's the reason that sentiment is widely shared in the West. A lot of people are also bringing up, and this is probably where most of the comments are going, um, examples of anime that do that do this pretty well, at least mm -hmm. people are talking about uh, Full Metal Alchemist or Ghost in the Shell has come up many times as a show great. That, that has uh, good, good writing. Yeah, has excellent um, dialogue. And maybe a lot of this stems from not so much what you've said here, but more kind of from the title of the <laughs> of the stream. Sure. Because sure. it's like, oh, well, you know, if you're going to compare Sword Art Online to the Coen brothers, maybe there's a, a better equivalency you could make there. Sure. I think that um, Ghost in the Shell is a great, a, a, a really good comparison. I think yeah. that um, uh, Samurai Champloo and uh, oh, Cowboy yeah, Bebop are great examples to, yeah. to contrast it with. Um, there are lots of great anime. Lots of Studio Ghibli films we've already talked about have great mm -hmm. dialogue, have great dialogue. There's a lot of good anime out there. All I'm saying yeah. is, is that there is there are some trends in the way dialogue is written, I think most especially in shonen anime, which is the probably the most worldwide popular style of anime. You maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I would assume. It's that you you um, get yeah. that anime more than most others culturally shared. Dragon sure. Ball Z, Sword Art Online, uh, Full Metal Alchemist. These types of shows are the ones that get really popular all mm. over the world, and they tend to fall into certain categories of writing dialogue that hit upon these principles I'm speaking on. They they can be very repetitious. They um, or the way they unfold exposition is done in a way that is not supernatural. Not supernatural, but very <laughs> natural. Super very natural. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And, and tend to be filled with filler text to avoid having to animate um, more than is necessary for budget constraints. Um, tend sure. to be styled in a way that is very, very overly expressive. And these are some of the reasons why I believe uh, Westerners can be off-put by uh, Japanese dialogue in anime and in JRPGs. So, um, right. again, I'm not trying to make any definitive point about it is good or bad, but trying to get to the heart of why people feel this way. So, okay. All We've right. been going for a very long time. This, is something this has been longer than I expected. <laughs> we're going to have to fill out the new... Uh, the new format for the podcast a bit and get it yeah. tightened up. We'll, I we'll have get that. We'll talk. Yeah. We'll talk about it. We'll get there. We'll probably do a lot less news topics yeah. next week. <laughs> <laughs> that was part of it. Also, I actually have to go right now. Go for it. Go oh, for it. I, it's four o'clock now. So um, I'm going to head out. If you could finish this up and then I I'll will call later. That sounds good. Uh, okay. Have right, a good thanks. one. Thanks for joining us. Peace out case. Okay. So uh, one, uh, let's jump over to our last segment.
which is community stories. So this is something that I wanted to do uh, for the podcast moving forward so that um, we can kind of um, give give our audience. A lot of you are um, artists yourselves. You, you're writers, you're uh, composers of music, musicians, uh, you know, um, game developers, stuff like that. So I wanted to create a segment where I can kind of like give a platform to uh, to you guys so that you guys can sort of share your work so we can kick some people over to what you're creating as well. Um, and I'm also interested. I'm also interested to see the, the stuff that you guys are working on. So um, I'm going to start off first by talking about um, Roy Samuel Clark. He's one of our... Um, Patreon supporters, uh, appreciate his support on Patreon. He created a, um, a lo-fi cover of Lena's theme from Final Fantasy V. Again, this will be in the description of, um, of the YouTube video and things like that. But I'm going to kind of just play a clip of it here. I really dug this. I thought this was super good. So here's a Roy Samuel Clark's YouTube channel. Subscribe, encourage him to continue making more uh, music covers, because I thought this was really well done. Okay, just a little preview there of his work. Uh, I really liked it. Really chill vibe. Um, something I could listen to while I was reading or writing or something like that, working during the day. Um, really cool. Really cool little uh, cover there by uh, Roy Clark. So thank you for sharing that with me. Appreciate that very much. Um, guys, go check out his stuff. And hopefully he'll write some more. Um, Gliding Falcon says Final Fantasy V music is underrated in general. I agree. I think the the soundtrack for five is really quite good. Um, <clears throat> okay, the second artist that I would like to feature today. Hold on, let me pull it up here. Is uh, Chris Guin. Chris Guin is another of our Patreon supporters, um, and he is creating a video game himself. The the the. The game is called The Adventures of Chris. His name is Chris, right? So he uh, he is the lead character in the game. I have actually played this. Well, played the demo that he had available at the time that I was streaming with him on Patreon. Um, and I loved this game. I say this completely legitimately. I say this from the heart. I loved this game. This game was really, really well done. Um, 
it was fun. It was challenging. It was tight mechanically. Uh, the art is fantastic. Um, and the music's really good too. Um, it is just overall like a, a very, very well, um, developed game. A lot of thought went into it and, uh, he has put up a steam page and everything like that. I'll share that with you guys so that you guys have all the links again on YouTube. Those will be in the description. Uh, so go, so go check it out. Um, he may also be looking for some, uh, some testers, like some play testers and things like that. So if you want to help him out, you know, you can reach out to him, all of that information, um, I will, well, I'll try to post some links here in the, in the chat once we watch the, um, the trailer and everything like that. Um, but again, legitimately loved this game. I had a blast with it. So he's got a little trailer here to sort of announce it. Let's go ahead and play that. So I just want to point to what it says there at the end. Oh, no. Go back. So coming to Steam in 2019, uh, join the mailing list. So go to adventuresofchris.com if you're interested in being on the mailing list. Um, I, again, I really loved playing through uh, what Chris had uh, had uh, done in terms of his um, uh, beta that that I played with him. Uh, it's a little over a year ago now, I think. Um Let's see. He's got a story synopsis here that he wants to share. So he's got like a Google Doc. I'm going to share that link in the chat. So let me pull it up. Over here. So we've got that. Uh, Google Doc gives you a, um, a synopsis of the story. Here is the trailer video. If you guys are interested in that. We've got uh, adventuresofchris.com, of course, and then here's the the link to the to uh, the game on the Steam store uh, on Steam there. So you got that. Let's see if I've missed anything else. Um, here's the latest PC build for any of you who are interested in this. You might want to play test and give them some feedback. Um, okay, I think that's all the list. I, I think that's all the links that he sent me. 
So there you have it. Uh, I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, I had a blast with it. I thought it was super fun. So uh, check out The Adventures of Chris. Uh, reach out to Chris and uh, let him know what you think of it. Give him some feedback. Help him out. Um, okay, that reaches or that concludes uh, the podcast for today. Some people were asking a little bit earlier, hey, are you going to continue taking questions from the audience? Uh, yeah, I definitely want to keep doing that through Patreon, but I didn't do that for today's episode because I knew we were going to have some, um, you know, we're going to be feeling things out, sort of troubleshooting. And obviously we went really, really, really long today. So I think we need to take less news topics at the beginning <laughs> and that'll help with that. But um, we won't be taking as many um, questions from the audience as we were before. Because again, we want the bulk of the show to be centered on topics that that we're interested in making videos on so we can kind of refine our ideas. So um, we appreciate that you guys uh, are, are giving us feedback on that and will help us sort of like uh, get to a, a better place in terms of like what we should focus on in our thesis. Um, Gliding Falcon is asking, how come new, no YouTube stream? Okay, um, this is due to the fact uh, that the YouTube algorithm um, has been hurting our main videos on Monday, I think at least partially because of the, the big live streams that we do. I think the algorithm is confused about, um, about the content that it should recommend on our channel. And I'm trying to figure out ways to help our main videos that go up on Monday have a little bit of a higher reach in our audience. So we have pretty close to 82,000 subscribers on YouTube. Why is it that when we put out a video on Monday, it gets three to 5,000 views? That is something that I'm trying to figure out how YouTube is deciding which of our videos it's trying to show to people. So I want to, at least for now, remove uh, live streaming from the YouTube channel to see if that has an effect. Um, I'm still debating whether or not I'm going to upload the podcasting clips to the YouTube channel or whether I'm going to upload it all in one video. Um, again, the, the, the goal here is to try and get more of you guys to see the videos we're releasing on Monday because not very many of you, I think, are getting notified or are seeing that. Um, so, yeah, that's the reason why, for now, we're streaming exclusively on Twitch because Twitch is built for streaming that's like the whole purpose of it youtube you know has streaming but it's not its only purpose and so i think the algorithm can get a little confused sometimes about what it is the audience of a channel wants to be shown so anyways that's the reason why we'll get some more um comments or or, or topics suggested from the audience hopefully next week uh Kason and i will refine the process for this new podcast but hopefully you guys enjoyed it and again, feel free to share anything that you know about the topics we discussed today, um, especially culturally speaking, when we're talking a lot about Asian culture. Uh, obviously, we're not, we're not part of an Asian culture. We're just basing what we're talking about based on what we've researched, and we, we could be missing some key pieces. So anything that you guys can share with us would be greatly appreciated. Um, and, and yes, we will be streaming at this time Sunday afternoon, uh, mountain time, you know, around one or 2 PM mountain time, uh, moving forward. That's, that's the time slot for the, for the live stream. Um, for those of you who are listening audio only, um, or watching this on YouTube, this is where we're going to conclude for today. 
Um, for those of you who are watching on Twitch right now, I'm going to do a short preview of the video that will be going up tomorrow, the Vagrant Story um, retrospective review. So for those of you who are interested in that, stay tuned. And uh, let's go ahead and just do a quick preview of that for the rest of you. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Peace out.